Hello, and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast. I am your host, Neve, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Connor. Hey. And we are here to... <laughs> just the, the like, very short hey just That's got new, me for some reason. intro. Yeah. Um, anyway, we are here to, to cover episodes 14 through 23 of Revolutionary Girl Utena. This is the episodes known as the Black Rose Saga. Um, we're going to have a lot to get into here. Um, no. There, yeah, there's a lot in these 10 episodes. 10 episodes is like maybe too much. Um, and I, I really did debate like trying to break this into five episodes and five episodes. But um, I think so much of what Utena is doing, like the arcs I think are significant for the way that like Utena is structured. Um, and so it's this thing where I kind of felt comfortable breaking up that first arc into two parts because that's where I, I feel like there'll be the most interest in having a part where it's just like, you know, I know where this is going. Connor doesn't Connor's like trying to like suss out some of this where we're making sense of it. Um, and then we yeah, kind of you, get the like, conclusion of the time arc. where remember that time where I thought we were done with Sionji. Yeah. <laughs> in the last episode. Um, that, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're still going to get a little bit of like, I know where this is going next, but I feel like it is far easier for us to like contain it within a conversation. If it is an arc, because there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about. And then there's some open questions that we can kind of throw to at the end. And I know where it's going. Connor doesn't. I can kind of get reactions from Connor and have a little bit of the fun at the end of like, where do you think this is heading? Um, But I just felt like that would, those would be more interesting conversations if we are able to just do the whole arc at once um and like more rewarding conversations than having it where we're kind of trying to suss through stuff that's happening like in the first half of an arc and i'm just like how much do i want to say to like steer this towards like stuff that's relevant or whatever um so i think this is the best way to balance it is that we just do the arcs the the flip side of that though is there's just so much to cover <laughs> Um, and so I was trying to think through of like, how are we going to structure this episode to, to really gear towards that arc structure and make sure that like, we don't just get in the weeds, um, in ways that can sometimes be really easy to do. And so the way that I'm structuring this episode is we're going to do all the synopses at the top, including, I'm just going to start with an overall synopsis of this arc. Um, and for the most part, like getting into kind of what's just going on in general and what are like some of the repeated things that we're seeing here. Um, so that we can then do here the synopsis of the, the 10 episodes and we'll just run through all of those. Um, and then we'll actually get into the discussion. So um, if you have like already watched Utana, you don't want to listen to us do a synopsis at all. Feel free to like skip ahead a little bit. Um, I don't know exactly how far, but like, you know, just, hit that like 30 seconds forward a few times and listen and see if we're still doing a synopsis and then like do it again. <laughs> um, I'm not going to take the time to put in the, the timestamp. Sorry, y'all. Um, but yeah, you know, but we can kind of get that all out at the very top. Um, we've talked about everything that happens at least like 
broadly and vaguely. Um, and then we can just get into the themes and start tying it to stuff that happens in these different episodes instead of doing what we often do, which is kind of go through episode by episode often. Um, and then often end up touching back on the same themes again and again. We can kind of just focus on theme first, tie it to episodes. And when we kind of get done with like, these are the big themes that we wanted to talk about. We might just run through a few of the episodes that we're like, mm, I just want to say a little bit more here because I feel like we didn't hit on it enough or um, whatever. Um, and then kind of wrap it up. So that's that should be the structure here. Um, I'm sure we'll also freestyle it as we go. But I just want to, like that up at the top because it's different than how we normally do it. But it is how I might try to handle some anime where we can do these clear arcs often. Um, but we're testing it out here. With with Utena. Um so I guess we'll get into the synopsis unless you have any other introductory comments. Uh no. Yeah, I think uh with all of that said, I think we can just launch right into the synopses. Okay. Um so again, this is for kind of the, the arc overall. Um so although Utena has overcome the student council duels. She's now facing a new gauntlet of duelists. Um, the, these duelists are being organized by Mikage Soji, who is the pink-haired boy that we saw in the Next Time On section of episode 13. And he's presiding over a project called the Mikage Seminar, uh, Seminar which is being held in um, this building called the Nemuro, uh Memorial Hall that is like burned down and a bunch of duelists supposedly burned to death in it. Um, and then it was like rebuilt. Um, and we find out fairly early on that Mikage's goal seems to be to kill Anthe and then install a young boy named Chiba uh, Mamiya as the new Rose Bride. Um, and Mamiya here looks like Utena's prince, the, the prince that mm -hmm. we've seen descending from the, the castle and that we've seen in the like fable. Um, heavy emphasis on looks like <laughs> here. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We'll get into it. Um, so basically, students are enlisting in the, semin uh, the seminar, um, and they enter what is, I guess, an elevator. Like it, it's going down. It's it's also kind of framed like a almost like a con uh, confessional room. Um, yeah. I often see it compared. People often just talk about psychoanalysis with this. I think, especially because of connections to um, Evangelion that can be drawn here, but. I also get a lot of like Catholic confessional vibes from this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like the tension between those is actually really important here. Um, but they enter into this elevator and they basically are confessing their like secret wishes and desires. The thing that they're kind of, that's consuming their heart. Um, and, you know, throughout it, uh, we, we will hear Mikage. We don't see him until they hit the, the bottom, but like urging them on to go deeper. And when they finally reach the bottom, um, Mamiya will stab them in the heart with a black rose, which, um, he's growing in that like pool in a glass box that we saw. Um, and, uh, then Mikage presents them with a black rose signet. Um, in most, but not all cases, this like black rose duelist who, who is selected will then go and pull a sword from the heart of one of the student council saga duelists. Um, so, and, and as a note, that includes like basically every from everyone from that saga, including Nanami, who at this point, I just want to note is leading the student council because Toga seems kind of like despondent or um, not involved after his defeat against um, Utena at the, the end of the student council saga. 
Um, all of these duels are initiated by a card being placed in Utena's locker, and at that moment is usually what will cut to the shadow play. Um, and the shadow play will be happening while Utena is standing there at the locker. Um, and then when, sh- when it gets to the end, it'll close and Utena will comment on it in some way. We'll like speak a line. Um, then uh, the only one that, that is different that's not a card placed in the locker is the one against um, Mikage Soji, which we'll get to when we talk about that episode. Um, when they go up to the dueling arena, uh, there's some things that have changed. Uh, one, it is now populated with a bunch of desks that are all evenly sp- uh, spaced in like a grid, basically. Um, and on those desks, there's an item that relates to the episode that we've seen like, you know, up to that point, uh, the, whoever the duelist is. Um, and we'll, I will mention, you know, I have it written in our synopses what those items mm-hmm. were. Um, also, the floor is covered in, like, red silhouettes of, like, you know, fallen bodies. Like, you might draw a chalk line, but then just fill it in with red. Um, and uh, a note here, Utena's prince continues to descend from the castle to Aider. Which, again, is strange, given that until at least the very end where this gets complicated, we are also being told that the boy named Chiba Mamiya seems to be her prince. Like, we see the prince, Mikage refers to to him as Chiba Mamiya and is, like, conspiring with Soji. (laughs) So, you know, throughout the entire arc, I think that's, like, a, a weird thing that when we get to the final episode kind of gets explained, but with new questions. Um... When Utena wins, all of the desks will come together into like four blocks. So they'll basically like separate out of the middle and push into to four, you know, the four corners. Um, and the duelist will fall and land perfectly in one of those red silhouettes. Um, the duelist then awakens later without any memory of the events. Oh, also, I didn't write this in here. When that happens to um, there are a bunch of like... Uh, what would you call it? It's like if you go to like a morgue, the like things that they store bodies in. Um, oh, caskets. And yeah, they're like caskets. And, and Soji will like pull them out in that like basement when they get to the bottom of the elevator to grab one of the rings and give it to someone. Um, and then when they fail, it like gets jettisoned into flames <laughs> to like be cremated or something, that casket. Um, so that also happens when the uh, duelist loses. Um, the duelists will then awaken later. They don't have any memories of the events around the seminar or the duel, but the student council members who had the swords removed from their hearts do remember. Um, and then Utena wins all of the duels, including the final duel against uh, Mikage Soji. And uh, during that, it's revealed that he was being used by Himemiya's brother, who we also get introduced in this arc. Um, and I haven't talked about it at all to th- at this point. Um, Otori Akio. <laughs> so he's basically been using Soji. But we can get into the episodes now and it'll clarify some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So um, going episode by episode, uh, the first episode is titled uh, The Boys of the Black Rose. Um, uh, we learn or it is revealed that uh, Anthe regularly goes to see her brother Akio um, every Saturday night. Um, Lieutenant goes with Anthe to, to meet um, Akio and uh, his fiance Otori Kan- uh, Kanai. Um, meanwhile, uh, professors like try and fail to bribe Mikage Soji, um, who we know uh, is working on the Mikage seminar. Um, and uh, so this is kind of happening in the background. Um, Otori Kane, uh, Kanai, 
uh, who's envious of Anthe uh, and wishes that Anthe liked her. Um, this is also a little more complicated, uh, yeah. but maybe we'll discuss this. Um, she goes to see Mikage and enters the elevator. Uh, when she reaches the bottom, uh, Soji says, "You have," or Mimiya says, "You have been chosen by my black rose." Uh, we, and this is where we really see this like full sequence that gets abridged like later on. Yeah. Um, but we see the full thing here where um, Mimiya stabs her with the black rose and she's given the ring. Um, we then cut to a duel. Um, at the duel, there are flowers in a vase on each desk um, that uh, Kane was arranging when uh, Utena and Anthe visited her. Um, Utena, of course, wins. Uh, and in the final scenes, we uh, see Anthe visiting Akio alone, presumably for one of, for her standard like Saturday night visit. Um, Akio is posed suggestively uh, on a couch, and Anthe takes off her glasses uh, and goes to him uh, when called. Um, the second episode called "The Landscape Framed by Kozue." So uh, Mikage and uh, Mamiya are discussing how it would be useful to use the fragile hearts of the student council members, um, but that the Black Rose requires somebody whose heart is consumed by some sort of desire. So basically they resolve to find individuals who are consumed by desire for the student council members. And they start with uh, Keoru uh, Kozui, who is the sister of Miki. Um, and we, we basically get various scenes of um, Kozue being like kind of possessive over a brother. Uh, this includes like, there's a scene where uh, Miki sees like some boy hitting on Kozue. And then she sees the like music teacher talking to Miki. And then apparently um, we don't see the actual moment, but like jewelry kind of challenges are on this. Um, the music teacher gets pushed down a flight of stairs um, and, and injured. And it's heavily implied it was Kozue. Um, and during her time in the elevator at the seminar, she's revealing uh, her love for her brother and the jealousy that she has over his attentions and affections for Anthe, especially um, kind of comes down to Anthe. Uh, <laughs> we will talk about the number of people who seem to be uh, upset about how people like Anthe. <laughs> um <laughs> She then goes, uh, the other thing that's revealed here is that she, like, basically dates, uh, bad boys to, like, try and make Miki be protective of her. Um, she then goes and seems to be trying to kiss Miki when she then pulls the sword from his chest. Um, this is the first time that we see it. Uh, I just want to say here, because we didn't say at the top, that it, um, does evoke the pulling the sword out of Anthe's chest, um, that happens during the duels, except the person seems far more distressed that it is happening. Yeah. Um, but it, it's sort of a similar, like, leaning back and the sword coming out. Um, then, during the duel, which of course she loses, uh, there are milkshakes on the desk, which um, refers to, there's also a scene earlier where Miki makes milkshakes for uh, both of them, and she refuses it, saying it's too sweet. And then after the conclusion of the duel, um, she asks Miki to make her a milkshake while she's like laying in bed, kind of repeating that scene, uh, but this time specifically asking for for a milkshake. Um, sorry, I'm laughing because I'm looking at the synopsis for the next episode, <laughs> um, which uh, we, then, we then lead into a very cruel high episode 
um, one that we've been anticipating. The cowbell of happiness. <laughs> yeah, titled the cowbell of happiness. Um, in this, yeah, in this episode, Anthe orders. Well, it, it opens with Anthe watching like a late night infomercial and eating potato chips, yeah. waking Utena <laughs> up, like because she's watching this infomercial. Um, the infomercial is advertising like a special pendant from uh, Sebastian Dior, which I think we're meant to understand is a reference to uh, Christian Dior, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, and and is understood by the characters to be like a luxury, you know, uh, designer. Um, so Anthe, uh, in, in in one of those moments that you know you're you're eating potato chips and watching an infomercial <laughs> at four a.m. and you just you just make a splurge purchase on a uh, you know Sebastian Dior necklace. Um, yeah. Orders this this cowbell necklace for her cow Nanami. Um. Of course, it is later revealed that this uh, this necklace that uh, Anthony orders is a cowbell. Uh, it comes to Nanami for some reason we don't understand yet. Um, Nanami wears it um, when she gets it, believing it to be a special designer pendant uh, from the famous Sebastian Dior. Um, but it begins to transform her into a cow. Uh, there's a scene where she dreams she is being sold as cattle to the slaughterhouse uh, by Toga. Uh and she's awoken at the moment where a steak hits the grill. Uh, and Toga is like going to eat the steak. Um, which it, it's, po- it's very possible that is, uh, the, the direct reference that Krohai is making in the Hokuto, uh, seal episode. Um, <laughs> where there's stuff about like, there's the fear of like eating meat or there's just like a general fear of meat that's, in it and then also like transforming into an animal. Um, just go watch the Crow High episode and, and you'll know what we mean. Um, anyway, uh, in the scene referencing the duels, uh, Utena bullfights the fully transformed cow Nanami in order to remove the bell uh, from her neck. Um, very similar to like how she is destroying the rose uh, in the breast pocket of the duelist. Um, and then in the final moments, uh, we get one last joke where Nanami gets a nose ring um, that Anthony had also ordered for her cow. Um, of course, the source of all this confusion is that Anthony has a pet cow that she named Nanami uh, for some reason. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> completely yeah. normal episode. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving on. <laughs> so, the thorns of death. Um, so in this episode, we are back to full on lesbian content as Shiori, Jiri's love interest from the student council saga, uh, returns to the school. Um, she speaks with Utena and Anthe and eventually goes, um, to Jiri and is trying to basically apologize for stealing the man that Jiri loved, but Jiri says she never loved him. That's like basically not what it was about. Um, at that moment, a bird flies and hits the window and is like laying, twitching at Shiori's feet. Um, Juri goes to throw the locket that she has that has Shiori's picture in it into the lake, um, in order to try and rid her heart of Shiori and like the, the love that she has. Um, but somehow the pendant ends up in Shiori's room. Um, a flower vase falls over and then the puddle of water from the, the fallen over vase, um, which notably is the orange 
roses that are associated with jewelry. Um, Shiori finds the pendant, opens it up, sees that her picture is the one that's in it, and so Jury loves her. Um, she goes to the Mikage seminar and discusses how she basically always felt inferior to Jury, um, that she could never really compete, and was basically trying to like get one over on her by dating the boy, uh, because she believed that that would like finally give her power over Jury. But now that she's learned that Jury loves her, she's like, oh, now I like really hold the power. Um, and uh, so then, you know, after the whole going through the seminar elevator thing, uh, she goes to give Jury the locket, revealing that she knows Jury's secret. And then again, goes as if perhaps to kiss, but then pulls the sword from um, Jury's heart. Um, during the table, the ta- uh, during the duel, the tables all have like a, a bird perch that has the bird, like the one that hit the window. Um, some notes here, since it is a living being now, they all look up at Utena's prince as he descends, um, as if they can see him, and then they scatter when the duel ends. Um, and then in the final moments, Jury finds herself unable to rid herself of the locket again now that it is returned to her, um, and kind of passes. Uh, Shiori suggesting that perhaps Jury and Shiori are not done yet as a, a ongoing story. Um, people excited yeah. for this lesbian content. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the following episode uh, focuses on Tsubuki. Uh, Tsubuki has returned. Um, he is uh, continuing to do what he was doing before, um, essentially serving as Nanami's like, personal assistant. Um, but he's feeling shut out. Um, just like put upon by uh, Nanami and the rest of the student council uh, and just generally all the, all the main characters. Um, uh, he's also goaded on by a girl his age named Mari um, for being childlike, although she she's only one year older than him. Um, but there's uh, the return of this trope of like an old friend um, that we see with, for example, Shiori injury. Um, this yeah. is introduced for, for Suibuki. Um, he, uh, becomes fixated on, like, becoming an adult, um, or I guess this, he, he already was, but it, it deepens. Um, he's trying to figure out how to become an adult. He gets some, uh, questionable advice from several people, including Utena, um, concluding that if he does adult things, uh, like kiss people, uh, then he will be, he'll be able to become an adult. Uh, he considers eating a chocolate bar Mari was eating for a quote-unquote indirect kiss um, and also tries to get Nanami to eat uh, the food that he prepared and presumably uh, put in his mouth uh, for the same reason. Um, I didn't pick up on this detail when I was watching the episode, but you might have something there. Yeah, um, I think especially there's the shot of the... Um, both the bento box that he had it in and then also the half-eaten chocolate bar both in the trash together or the bento box is in the trash and then he uh, thinks again about eating the chocolate and then throws it in the trash as well yeah um, yeah and so, i think that's like he, linking those two things yeah and he's like struggling with shame and like you know desire and all, all the stuff around this um which maybe we'll be able to talk about later um he uh he also watches a, a montage of adults kissing in movies. He's trying to gain this experience. Um, 
Mari comes in to like razz him about it. Um, and he tries to kiss Mari. Um, but she like, she like is repulsed, um, and runs away. Uh, he finally goes to the Mikage seminar uh, and talks of his desire to become an adult. Um, afterwards, uh, he's back in the theater uh, with Nanami, uh, and he tries to kiss her, but she's like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and then sees that he's been like possessed with the, you know, he's in like the Black Rose mood. Um, and then he promptly like pulls swords from her chest. Um, during the duel, the partially eaten chocolate bar uh, sits on each desk, continuing this theme. Um, and then uh, Utena wins. Uh, and in the final scenes, we see Suibuki having a uh, brief conversation with Nanami, having forgotten all of what has transpired, uh, but then leaving Nanami to go run after Mari. Um, next episode, uh, the song for the kingdom now lost. Uh, so Wakaba is basically on a date with Utena when a boy named Tatsuya Kazami approaches to give a love letter to Utena. Um, Wakaba remembers him as her onion prince. There's like this uh, sort of flashback of her being teased for having an onion head and she sort of grabs his hand and says, well, he's my like onion prince. He'll defend me to like shield herself, basically. Um, he doesn't seem to remember this, uh, also seemed to kind of be an unwitting onion prince, even in the flashback. Um, Utena believes that Wakaba has a crush on Kazami, um, and there's sort of an extended, uh, lunch scene where they're all kind of talking around this, uh, stuff comes up about like the inability to, to know the prince that is in someone's heart, um, and so, uh, basically, you know, Utana convinces, like, oh, Kazami, run after Wakaba, like, she likes you, dummy, basically, um, is kind of suggested. He does. Um, turns out, though, that Utana <laughs> also does not know the prince that is in Wakaba's heart. Um, and it is not what... I certainly hope the first time I watched this, which is that the, the prince in Wakaba's heart is Utena. Um, but, um, yeah, they're really, they're really setting you up for that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. when he basically, uh, when, um, Kazami basically says like, you know, in this way of like, Oh, go, you know, tell your prince how you really feel. I'm, I'm sure he feels the same way, you know, kind of leaning towards like, Hey, let's, let's just start dating. Um, she reveals that it's someone else when she's like, yeah, good advice. And just runs off to, to go tell that other person. Um, Kazami, Kazami you'll, goes, find, you'll find your person too. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah you'll I find know your I person will. Oh wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This one's played more jokingly than some of these episodes have though. Not nearly to the cowbell level. Um, Kazami then goes to the Mikage seminar and is um, descending, but there's a part where he's like, I'm just going to keep trying to be good. Like, I'm sure she'll she'll come around eventually. Um, and so she's like, nope, you're too good of a person. You're not consumed enough with dark desires and rejects him from the seminar. Uh, so we don't get a duel here with Kazami. Um, in the final moments, we see Wakaba return home to Sionji, which leads us to the next episode. Yeah. 
Um, the, I didn't put it in the notes, although I was, I was going to, but, um, <laughs> when, uh, when you get this reveal that, like, Bacava's prince is Sionji, uh, I just, like, like, I, I just reacted so strongly. I, I, like, literally couldn't help myself but be like, no. Um, and I just, in my, in my notes, I just wrote, no. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of, like, this thing that, um, you probably haven't seen this, uh, but uh, it. I can't remember what network it's on, but like the broadcasters on one of the like main NFL covering networks do this bit called "Come on, man," where they just like take highlights from that week where people have done something like clumsy or like silly or or just like yeah. bad, and then they play it back and they like you know they talk over it and then they all just start yelling, "Come on, come on, man." Um, anyway, that's what I was thinking of. I was just like, come on, man. Like, not Sionji. Um, okay. Um, often when I rewatch Utena, I intentionally watch this episode and the next episode together, just because, like, I, I need to remember that Sionji's not bad to her. <laughs> um, he's kind of an asshole at the end, but he's not, like, abusive in the way he has throughout the series. So, next episode. Yeah. Um, next episode... Uh, we find out that uh, following his expulsion, Sionji has been living in Wakaba's room. Um, uncharacteristically, he is sweet and loving with her, uh, seemingly. Um, Wakaba is like en- enlivened by this relationship and seems full of energy and exuberance, um, succeeding at everything she puts herself to. Um, this is noticed by everyone around the school, including Utena. Uh, Sionji handcrafts a beautiful wooden hairpin for Wakaba to show his appreciation. Um, just what, what a beautiful gesture. Um, yeah. In a conversation between Utena and Akio, Akio says most people are not special like Utena, um, but they can break out of their ordinary position sometimes and shine brightly if given a reason. Uh, we got a real Gurta on our hands here. Yeah. Um, however, because they're not inherently special, like their periods of specialness will always be short-lived yeah. and contingent. Because they're not on. a main character and are merely a side character. Yeah, uh, they can only shine brightly for a few episodes. Yeah, right. They don't have inherent genius. Um, yeah. So um, uh, Mikage uh, goes to speak with Sionji uh, and offers to get his expulsion removed if he will just. Uh, it, we don't know exactly what it is in, in the moment, but we find out the condition is that uh, he gives Soji the hairpin. Um, the next scene, uh, Wakaba is walking down the street and sees Anthe walking by with the hairpin in her hair. Um, I'll also add here that like the previous couple of scenes are establishing, like Sionji asks about Anthe, it's reestablishing yeah. like this anxiety that Wakaba has around like knowing that Sionji's in love with Anthe. Um, so then you flash forward and she sees Anthe walking with this hairpin in her hair that uh, Sionji has just promised to Wakaba as a representation of uh, his, you know, loyalty to her. Uh, she goes home uh, to ask Sionji about this uh, and he's like already leaving um, because he's been reinstated and like he's, you know, he he's you know stepping back into his old role. Yeah. 
Gonna um, get out of your hair. I, you know, I can't give you the the hairpin, but don't worry, I'll buy you something even better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that hairpin. I actually, uh, <clears throat> you know, I wasn't able to give it to you. Uh, after all, but I, I am gonna buy you something. But uh, I would prefer to mail it if that's okay. Even though we live on the same campus, um, yeah. Can I just mail it to this address? Or yeah, are you planning to move in the next like <laughs> month or two? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I'll just yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just mail it. All right, see ya. Um, so Sionji bails, um, and Wakaba is uh, devastated. Uh, she goes to the Mikage seminar and vents about like how she isn't special um how this relationship with sionji was her chance to become special uh but now anthony's ruined it for her um uh she then goes and takes the sword from uh sionji's chest um during the duel uh this like special one-of-a-kind handcrafted hairpin uh is, is like duplicated across all of the desks um and uh, after uh, Utena's victory, uh, Wakaba goes back home to an empty room, um, yeah. hoping to see Sionji and then, like, not seeing him. Do I think it is also important because it's been, it's suggested with some of the earlier episodes and then kind of spreads around as a rumor at the school that, um, like, people come out of the seminar and, uh, like, they, their mood is improved like they like they've addressed their problems and this is one of the big ones where it's just like her look is not like oh things are back to normal whatever like i'm it's like her looking at the empty room just being like i don't have anything now <laughs> um, yeah it's, her reaction it's pretty, is yeah it seems pretty, pretty downtrodden yeah. um so the next episode, one of Nanami's lackeys named Sonoda Keiko has a crush on Toga, who is again Nanami's uh, sister or brother, um, and is basically jealous of how Nanami gets to fawn over Toga, but prevents the lackeys from like really seeing him. Um, she's looking forward to seeing Toga at a party that Nanami is going to throw, but then when it comes time for the party, Nanami's like, oh, can you go get paperwork, even though you wore a special dress for this and everything? Um and Keiko thinks about how the only girl who can get near the prince is the princess from her fairy tale world. Um, meanwhile, Utena and Anthe go to visit Akio, and Akio comments on how it's beautiful seeing the two of them together, um, Utena and Anthe. And when Utena leaves, he makes it clear to Anthe that he wants her to stay close to Utena, like the Gemini twins. Uh, he makes comparisons to like constellations throughout this. Um, then. Returning to uh, the stuff going on with Keiko, she sees Toga walking in the rain and offers to walk with him and share her umbrella. Um, while they are walking together, Nanami sees them and uh, then in a, in a subsequent scene kicks Keiko out of the lackey group um, and forbids her from seeing Toga, basically. Keiko goes to the Mikage seminar saying, uh, I thought I could love whoever I want, so why won't she let me? Um, she then goes and obviously removes the sword from Toga's heart. We, we've seen the pattern by now. <laughs> yeah. um, during, the umbrella, or during the duel, the umbrella sits on each table. Um, and then after the duel, um, Utena and Anthe see Keiko 
once again a lackey of Nanami. Um, unlike Hokuto's lackey, she does get a name, but uh, Utena <laughs> comments on how she didn't know Keiko's name. <laughs> um, and uh, Anthe, though, knows the names of all of the, the lackeys. Um, and you know, during the duel, uh, Keiko kind of revealed that she loved Toga. And so she's like, why can she stay with Nanami as this like lackey when she loves Toga and Nanami's like, you know, not treating her well. And Anthony responds, if it's for someone you love, how you feel about others doesn't matter. You keep lying to yourself for as long as it takes, which sure is a statement for Anthony to say. <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll return to that statement. Uh, yeah yeah uh i know i know that for sure <laughs> um the uh in the next episode uh titled nemuro memorial hall uh soji goes to ask utena to join his seminar um when she says her grades are bad he says it's not about academics they look for people with individualistic personalities uh in other words special people yeah um <laughs> we then get uh flashbacks um well uh it, as as you mentioned in the introduction um this building is it, this is hinted at throughout the arc but this building uh is um there was this tragic event that occurred uh Mikage in this at the start of this episode reveals that there was a professor named Nemuro um he was working on research uh but w- with these 100 young men uh, and then the building burned down, uh, and all of them, all of the, they all died tragically. Uh, and then, you know, it was m- many, many years later, the building was rebuilt, uh, and in this rebuilt, like, hall, um, is where he has the seminar. Uh, pretty much right after he says this, we get flashbacks where, uh, it's revealed that Mikage is somehow Professor Nemuro. Um, despite the many years that have passed, uh, this is kind of an extended flashback where, uh, we see, uh, uh, Mikage, who now we know to be Nemuro, um, working on the the aforementioned research, um, with these young men. Uh, he ends up teaming, kind of teaming up with a woman named, uh, Chida Tokiko, uh, who is the sister of Chida Mamiya. Uh, who we know by now, um, and uh, very concerned for her uh, sickly brother, uh, Mamiya. Uh, Tokiko is either herself working on research or invested in ne- uh, Nemuro's research uh, around this like uh, these vague this vague idea of like quote-unquote revolutionizing the world and quote-unquote attaining eternity um presumably to save her sickly brother who's dying um from not anime space disease but uh unidentified anime anime, coughing disease yeah yeah unidentified anime wasting disease um also call our law firm if if you or a loved one suffer from from this disease you may be entitled to compensation um, That's Ghost, comma, Divers, comma, and Associates, LLC. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll put the uh, phone number at the end of the um, episode. Um, uh, throughout this flashback, at a certain point, um, we start to get like 
a, a hand, almost like a cursor, uh, appearing on screen, pointing at like certain objects, um, uh, a black cat, um, tea pouring into a cup, a butterfly under glass, two black cats, three black cats, um, lipstick on the edge of Tokiko's cup, Mamiya in the flower garden, um, so on and so forth. Um, Mamiya talks to Soji uh, about how his sister preserves flowers in sugar or through drying, um, but he also wonders uh, if the flowers particularly like being made to last longer in this way, uh, because nothing in this world is eternal, although uh, a heart that longs for eternity could be considered beautiful. Um, as Soji works, uh, we see the hand return. Um, again, another montage of him kind of like doing research. Um, the hand returns, pointing to a leaf under glass um, instead of a butterfly. Uh, Mikage's empty teacup. Uh, Mikage's teacup with tea in it and lipstick on the edge. Uh, Mikage is finally uh, given the final key uh, to his research by none other than Akio, who's not, it's not revealed to be Akio, but we know it is. Um, yeah. We see enough that it really seems to be Akio. <laughs> yeah. Um, who gives him a rose signet ring and says that uh, all 100 boys in the building uh, wear one to show the contract that they made with him. Um, it's also heavily implied that um, there's discussion of a contract that Akio makes with uh, Mikage Soji in this moment. He hands him a piece of paper and Soji reads it and is like, I can't do that. Um, I think it's heavily implied that like the contract is killing is setting this fire and killing all of these boys. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and then the conversation evolves and Akio is like, Oh, they've all the boys have made a contract with me as well. Um, you know, kind of like they've, they've already agreed to this. Um, Mikage then sees Akio kissing Tokiko, um, who, uh, Mikage, like we know at this point, Mikage uh, loves. Uh, we then see the building on fire, and Tokiko slaps Mamiya for starting the fire um, and killing everyone inside. There's kind of a confusion here because we we think that uh, Mikage is setting the fire, but then Mamiya seems to have done it. Um, in the final scenes, Tokiko comes across Utena and Anthe. Um, in the present. Yeah, in, in the present. Thank you. Um, and just kind of like pa- uh, passes by them. Uh, it's revealed that she's come to see Mamiya's grave, which of course reveals that Mamiya is dead. Um, uh, in- uh, <laughs> creating further confusion uh, about the like seemingly live Mamiya we've been seeing. Um, and uh, Utena and Anthe, uh, the kind of final uh, scene of the episode is Utena and Anthe having a, a strange conversation in the Rose Garden um, where Anthe is, Utena's like, oh, you know, can't you like not do this? And Anthe is like, no, I have to because he wants me to. Something to this effect. Yeah. Um, the he is not specified yet. Uh, but it is, of course, curious because from what we know, the Rose Bride should follow everything that Utena says. Um, so it's weird for her saying, well, now I have to do it even though you're talking to me otherwise yeah um, also the final two episodes of this uh arc are directed by m night um 
because they are the uh, terms of a duelist the final <laughs> episode the 10th episode we're discussing episode 23 of the anime both the student council and mikage soji are independently considering having utena join them since she's so strong um we learn also here that soji seems to believe that utena is tokiko um we get flashbacks of utena um I don't even know what I wrote here. <laughs> um, yes. Um, yeah, this is... Um, in the coffin. Oh, in the I coffin. wrote coffee yeah. and it confused myself so much. We, so we, we get, get flashbacks of... We get the flashback <laughs> that we talked about last time at length. Flashback to the yeah. flashback. Yes. So we, we go to Utena in the coffin um, where, you know, in the previous flashback we saw... Uh, toga going and opening it um and in it we we get this like emphasis on her wondering why anyone keeps on living if nothing is eternal and we all will die eventually anyway um anthe comes home late and falls asleep with her hand on utena and utena uh awakens um they're like both kind of falling asleep across the table with a tv on and um you know anthe's hand is on utena's hand um and Utena thinks about how Anthe can't quit being the Rose Bride, um, even if she wants to, which could be what they were discussing in the, the garden in the previous episode. Who knows? Um, and then, like, more in- firmly uh, grasps Anthe's hand and, like, you know, holds back, uh, you know, holds her hand back. Um, then uh, the next day, presumably, Mikage uh, again invites Utena to the seminar and says that he could help with her problems. Utena's like, I don't really have problems. Um, <laughs> I'm fine. And he's like, well, I could help a friend of yours as well. Um, and so she thinks of Anthe and agrees um, while waiting in the like entry room of the Nemuro Memorial Hall. She's looking at a bunch of photos. Uh, one thing that I think is very funny watching this on HD and knowing that this is probably made to be displayed on standard definition televisions is when it's close up, it is clearly the photos that she's looking at. But when it's far away, it seems to just be photos of like staff members or something very tiny <laughs> that they probably thought would never be high res enough to see. But uh, I laughed at it anyway. So you notice his photos of all the Black Rose duelists um, and becomes very angry at Mikagi Soji. Um, In this moment, he calls her Tokiko, revealing to her that he's seeing or whatever, something else. Um, And he's claiming that Utena is just like him uh, and kind of references, I think there's a photo of it. Um, or something the the fable of the prince kind of this evidence that um, she also wants to change her life according to her memories yeah um, i think he's Utena, like obliquely he's not like it's not clear that he knows about like the specific stuff around the prince but he knows that like she's had some sort of experience like some powerful experience in her memory that like is driving her yeah um Utena continues to insist that she's not like him and hits him and um, sees that he has a black rose signet on his hand and challenges him to a duel later. Uh, so she basically comments like, oh, the the reason she didn't kill me then is because she saw that I was a duelist. Um, during the duel, uh, photos sit on the desks. Um, 
Mikage is definitely of, the of uh, yeah. Mamiya and um, uh, Tokiko. Yeah, um, and Mikage is definitely the most school uh, skilled duelist that we've seen in the arc up until this point, um, and it is really gaining ground on Utena in a way no one else has. Um, there's a, a moment where Utena jumps, and he saw that that was going to happen, um, but then while flying back, Utena has Anthe bless her sword. Um, at that moment, Mikage hears the voice of Mamiya, who says, you can't beat her, my sister who dwells in your memories. You'll never defeat her. And he realizes that the photos, uh, he, he notices them again, and the Chita Mamiya uh, the cheetah Mamiya, the real Mamiya, who's in the photo with his sister, looks different than Utena's prince. We we see him now. He looks far closer to the sister who we've seen, um, which notably, she does not look terribly like Utena's prince who we've seen. Um, and now he sees the, the real uh, Mamiya. Um, at that moment, Utena's prince descends from the castle once again and aids her in defeating Mikage. Um, in his defeat, we also hear a phone call then from, um, Akio to Mikage. And, uh, it is revealed that Mamiya did indeed die. Um, and Mikage was in fact the one who set the, the hall on fire. We see like a return to the, um, the flashback where, uh, Mikage is the one holding the, the candlestick and being slapped by Tokiko. Um, and Akio says that the way that Mikage treasured the memory of his illusion so dearly stopped time. Um, and here's a, a more direct quote from Akio. The time you spent not growing up as you kept possibilities hidden in your heart proved useful to me, but that's all over now. The path you must take has not been prepared for you, which is different from up until this point. Mikage's always said the path you must take is prepared for you when people get to the bottom of the elevator. Um, and then Akio says, now graduate from this place. Um, after the duel, it seems like no one remembers anything about what transpired. Uh, the exact amount to which people remember what happened during the arc is honestly unclear at this point. But um, we do get like Miki and Utena um, walking by the ruins. I forget if Anthe is there at that point. Um, but Miki comments, you know, Utena's like, oh, what are these ruins? And, and Miki's like, oh, I don't even remember the name. It's like the, you know, some other like end name, uh, you know, Memorial Hall or something. I, I don't remember. Uh, it burned, no one was inside and like it was never rebuilt. Um, in the final moments, we see Akio talking to Utena's prince. Again, we don't know his name now because he's apparently not Mamiya um, and telling him that he was also never really here at the school, just like uh, Mikage was never really here at the school. But in the final shot, Utena's prince turns, and we see that it is Anthe. Um, yeah, he like is... transforms into Anthe as he's turning. Yeah. Um, so, lots of question marks there. Um, so. <clears throat> that was a lot of we... synopsis. <laughs> yeah, where do we want to begin? Um, okay, so if you don't mind, um, I have I have one theme that I would like to start with. Sure. Because um, I think we can just kind of, like, start talking about, in the widest, like, sense, what some of the themes are in this arc. Um, yeah. As one quick aside, 
uh, just from the perspective of someone watching this for the first time, uh, this arc is very different <laughs> um, from uh, the like the the first you know thirteen episodes um, in, in in several ways. Um, it has a very like season two feel to it, um, where it's like okay, we're going to, like, step back and expand the, like, mythology of this world and, like, the the purview of, like, what's going on. Um, and then it, in a way that's, like, kind of disorienting and then, like, progressively tie it back into, like, the, the first season. I don't know. It just has, like, a very season two type of feel. Um, but it's very different. Uh, so the first theme that I think, uh, I'm bringing up first because it is like, it hits you right away. Um, uh, the the way I'm characterizing it is like a theme of like above and below, um, specifically figured in like the motif of like, uh, the stars. So like, um, constellations, stuff like that. Um, and then the depths. Um, so the underground, um, literally the first shot of episode 14, uh, in a very blue velvet type of move, um, we get like a wide shot of, um, either the whole school or one of the school buildings, I believe, um, and a pan down to reveal like this kind of subterranean structure, um, which we will eventually like find out this is the layer of, um, Mamiya and, uh, and Soji. Um, this is like immediately establishing, um, something that is, that is, uh, carried out over the arc, um, which is that we're going deeper, um, to like the dark underside of this world. Uh, right after we get the introduction of Akio and the planetarium where he apparently just lives um yeah you but, just really uh, love stars so much so that it's almost insinuated by uh kanai that like he is going to marry her just so he has access to the planetarium yeah so we only ever see him except in flashbacks when they really see him in the planetarium it feels like he's like very much linked to this place um but uh yeah so directly following this like um this spatial expansion to the subterranean um, we also get the spatial expansion invoking like the um, the stars, space, like uh, the introducing the stargazing motif with Akio. Um, what's happening here, I think, is like the world is immediately being expanded down and up, um, which is uh, kind of continuing our discussion of episode thirteen last time. Um, on one hand, uh, it, the show is zooming out to show that we're embedded, we, the characters, are embedded in even larger structures um, than, than we thought. Um, there are these, like, unacknowledged larger forces driving them uh, from below. Um, so literally, like, the Black Rose conspiracy being, like, occurring below the ground. Um, and then figuratively, which we'll get into later, um, the unconscious um driving us from below or within our mind 
which is, then, which is also linked with the uh, elevator going down. Um, per, yeah, so it's spatially linked to like the layer of the Black Rose conspiracy. Yeah. Um, so the, the but I think it's also significant the other elevator we see goes up to the planetarium as well. So we get like elevators in both cases as well. That's a very good point. Um, and leading me into the next, uh, into my next point, which is like, um, there's also, um, you know, the spatial expansion is also drawing our attention to forces driving us not only from below, um, but also from above. So like literally, uh, this earth, this like hierarchical authority, um, like an ivory tower, uh, kind of feel with Akio. Uh, linked specifically to Akio, who we learn at the end is, um, you know, kind of pulling the strings of everything. Um, he's also the chairman of the school somehow. Um, so he's, you know, uh, again, this like earthly hierarchical authority. Uh, and then also the figurative above, which is this like astrological mythical forces represented by the stars, um, constantly being evoked by Akio in relation to like... Um, you know, the, the characters and the events um, that are occurring. Um, and so the, this, like, theme of above and below, in a lot of ways, like, is defining, uh, I think, what's happening in the arc, um, where we're, we're kind of watching these forces come into play um, over and over again. Yeah. Um I, I think it's also like it this is also a thing that um definitely gets f- figured really heavily here but I I also think will be interesting as we begin to learn more about like Akio and the the like comparisons that we could make with him to other people but I think up until this point he still kind of remains um an enigma yeah. I, I don't know if you have stronger feelings about like <laughs> what he's doing and his role in all of this, but um, you know, the ending definitely suggests that he is some sort of greater force. Who's been planning things behind the scenes, even then Soji, who is kind of the, the main conspiracy here. Um, yeah. There, we also find also... out that Akio is like hundreds of years old, seemingly. Um Yeah. Because he's like present at well, again, like the the ending kind of casts into it casts doubt on like the ontological like status of <laughs> like the the rebuilt like Nemuro Hall. Like, was this place like rebuilt? Was it not? Um, but at least in like the version of events that were presented primarily presented with primarily throughout the arc akio is like present at like the the building before it's burned and we know the burning is like many many years in the past but he hasn't aged and i think someone remarks on like he hasn't aged even though it's been like a very long time yeah um so yeah, there's there's a lot of like interesting like this is this is a thing that I think is brought up at the beginning here, and I think you've done a good like you've pulled out a lot of um, what is there currently, and I think it it's something that we'll 
we'll be able to continue to think about, especially around, I think, um, Akio, and then also the, you know, I'm going to continue to say Utenas Prince as, like, shorthand, because, again, we once again don't know the name of this character. Um, and to kind of make that slightly separate from, there is the Mamiya who's, like, but but I think it is, what it's implied at the end is that Mamiya conspiring with Soji is, like, whoever this character is kind of posing as uh, or taking advantage of Soji seeing him as um, Mamiya to, like, help enact whatever Akio is doing. I don't know if that doesn't sit with you with what's going on, but that's kind of the the vibe that I get from this. Um, yeah. And I think it's, like, important to to think of how that character and Akio are relating, how the like a quote unquote Mamiya is relating. Um, and yeah. yeah. Oh no, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh. Well, and that, that also, I think like a significant thing here is that up until the end, we only ever see Mamiya or whoever, you know, I'm saying Mamiya shorthand for like the role that he plays throughout this, this, um, episode we we basically only see him in that like subterranean space or yeah. descending from the castle um during the duels as like that ghostly figure again those are the only times that we see him up until the very end where he's like finally up with akio whereas akio we always see up um and so like there is this division of like you know if we're if we're looking at these two characters of mamiya below akio above and it is at the end that that gets like somewhat confused, um, yeah. And again, also and I think confused around the way that like up until this point, that character was always descending from the upside down castle. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think there's further confusion about like, at least for me, watching uh, this arc for the first time. I, I think it's unclear that like. So, I mean, we've already seen, like, that the visual mapping is, like, not something that we should take at face value, you know? Like, um, I mean, for example, like, the Mamiya, like, being, looking like you're t- looking like the prince in the castle um, is revealed to be, like, an illusion uh, at, at the yeah. end of, like, this arc. Um, so the arc is already being like, okay, don't like take this visual mapping like at face value. Um, so I think there's also for me watching, I had questions about like, I, I never felt necessarily that the prince in the castle and Mamiya are like the same person. You know what I mean? Like they look yeah. the same, but in the world of Utena, like that does not mean they're the same person necessarily. Um, there is. I think my, and also like, I don't, I don't know if I'm not saying this, like being, I've watched the rest of it and I know the answer. Um, I think in this arc, it is confused and there are different ways you can read it. And so the, there's the reading. And I think it's the reading that I have, which is that the prince in the castle um, is also the person who's in the room with Akio at the end is also the person who's in the depths plucking the black roses and quote unquote, aiding Soji, but aiding Soji knowing that the duelists are going to go duel and then he's going to be able to descend from the castle and defeat the duelist. Like, is basically, 
conspiring, but in a way where he's still going to end up uh, ensuring that it's the outcome that like Akio seems to want, which is Utena and Anthe stay together, which is, you know, stated explicitly um, at one part at one point. Um, yeah. I think that makes but sense. But you could read it st- as there is actually someone else who also looks like this character for whatever reason, um, because the stuff is getting confused that Mikage is working with. Um, but I, my read is that the person who is working with Mikage is the person who's also like actually on the side of Akio and is like basically sabotaging Soji as, as he's doing this work. Um, but yeah, there, there is a tension there. And I don't, like, I don't think that the series really, I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've watched beyond this point. Um, again, like in preparation for us doing this series, I watched through the Black Rose saga just to kind of get a sense of like, do I feel good about us doing like two episodes versus one episode for, for these longer arcs? Um, and didn't really do the next one. I was like, I'm, I'm kind of excited to get to the next ones because I remember them far more vaguely having watched them far longer ago. Um, so we're entering territory where I'm not as familiar. I know more than you do, but I'm still not as familiar. Um, <laughs> well, that's not very but hard. Like, <laughs> um, but like, I've already given away in the intro episode that the next arc is called the uh, Akio Otori or the Otori Akio saga. So clearly it is going to be about this person reveal, you know, Akio being revealed and then coming up at the end is like, oh, he seems to be the next antagonist, maybe. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think your reading makes sense. And I, I mean, the lore people are going to come for us uh, <laughs> if we like if, because of this conversation. But um, I think your reading makes sense because what I was going to say is like, it's either the reading you proposed or like, there's also reading of like Mamiya, the like conspirator Mamiya that we see working with Soji is just like a figment of like Soji's mind. And like, there is like a quote, like a quote unquote real like version of this person that we see with Akio at the end. Um, And then that is like either that, that, person at the end is either the same or different from like the prince in the castle um but ultimately i think it's like it's all the same reading which is like there is some aspect of like we see in episode 13 akio and the prince in the castle have this conversation where they're conspiring like we see it that now again at the last episode in this arc we like see them back together having like discussing the success of their conspiracy <laughs> um and then like in between we see like this this prince like working with Soji um and there's some like the question there I think is like um how is it possible Soji like on some level knows what the real Mamiya looks like um so like this uh like the the prince is able to like present himself as Mamiya and Soji believes it enough to like think this is Mamiya until the very end where the illusion. So the the question is like, how is this illusion like affected uh, for Soji? Um, but you know, 
it's it's magic yeah um um i also think the important thing is that it it really raises like the final scene raises a lot of questions for like anthe and i read mm -hmm. of anthe um yeah because it's kind Um, of asking us to conclude that like anthe is the one who has been conspiring with soji this entire time um which is supported um in some of the stuff we see in these episodes yeah but then i think we are meant to not know like there's the scene of utena holding anthe's hand and i think we are meant to not know like even if and this is already an if that's being suggested that we don't have like a firm confirmation of but even if anthe is conspiring with her brother with the conversation and then the holding the hand is this something she is doing willingly or not as well is also oh, a question yeah, yeah um so those are those are like two questions and again we we've watched the show up to this point i i think we can assume that there's going to be no specific, extremely easy answer here but we will we will continue on we'll you know let's not get too ahead of ourselves um yeah um did you if there's another thing you want to bring up by all means but i was gonna go to to the second theme i have listed here because it seems like an appropriate segue yeah, I, I think this one is appropriate and I think is one of the, the bigger things, especially for, for like this arc that I want to focus on. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll let you start. And then there's something that I kind of want to fold into this that I think you've touched on, but um, I think it's just an important like additional okay. way of, of thinking about some of this theme. But I will let you start with the one who's written out this theme as well. Okay, I'll try and frame it up for you. Um so the second theme that we're that we're like, I think we agree is key in this arc is the theme of like selfhood, um, specifically like what is the true self or uh, what is the like utility of the true self, um, and then leading into like determination from within versus from without, which is something we talked about a lot with the Earth, um, but it comes up again here. Um, I think the core of like this theme is really anchored in like the structure around the duelists, their motivations, uh, w- which is borne out by the elevator scenes. Um, in these elevator scenes, like we are traveling with the character like into the depths of their mind. Um, it's kind of it's basically conveyed because they're in an elevator going down. Um, but then they're also like, it's this kind of, um, I agree, it's this kind of um, hybrid uh, vibe between like psychotherapy and like a Catholic confessional, um, where Soji is um, encouraging them to like explore the depths of their own psyche. Um, throughout all of these scenes, we the, the arc is basically positing that there are these um, immense psychological tensions like at the base of our consciousness um, that at least partially um, are driving our emotions and actions. Um, I will uh, point out one example of, of this cause it's the first one, but uh, can I um, name that I'm really having trouble pronouncing, but I think it's 
uh, Kanai. Um, Kanai. 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 Um, It's like Kanai. Kanai, yeah. Um, So anyway, um, one of the things that she says when she is um, dueling Utena is like, Utena's like, this isn't you. And she retorts like, no, this is the real me. The one that I had buried. Um, this is a somewhat constant refrain for the duelists, um, excavating, like in the process of doing this elevator thing with Soji, they're tapping into these, uh, like tensions. Um, they're revealing the quote unquote real version of themselves, um, by perceiving and accepting, um, these tensions and then acting on them. Um, but what is interesting about this is that, um, there is a kind of, uh, irony, um, where coming into the knowledge of these conflicts is not, um, it, it is liberating, but it's also devastating. Um, in that, like, the result of it is that they become killers. Like, they're, they're going to go, like, kill Anthe. Um, all of the, like, shackles of social convention are thrown off. Um, they're purely acting on, like, this, you know, these psychological tensions, um, and just, uh, you know, acting without remorse or like, you know, um, uh, moral consideration really. Um, so there's this aspect of like releasing the quote unquote real you, um, defined by the roiling psychological conflict (laughs) at the base of your personality, um, only really accomplishes, I think the arc is positing this. Um, only really accomplishes like creating an uh, impulsive and unrestrained like being. Um, and I think we're invited to consider that like the restraints of social convention are actually important for conditioning and mitigating um, the violence of the human psyche in, in some way. Um, while also the arc is continuing to show like oppressive social norms um the like violence that is incurred by uh that is incurred and inflicted um on people by not being able to like um by having to repress their desires um leading to then like this kind of this whipsawing of um you know explosive like unrestrained release in the black rose duelist uh duelist thing um versus like their normal existence where they're like repressed in all of these ways. Um, and there continues to be this tremendous tension um, between like the need for liberation. Um, I think I'm, I'm reading a little bit into this and interpreting, but um, I think we can say like, there's this, this felt need for like liberation because uh, from this repression. Yeah. So kind of self-determination there. Um, which, versus, which gets, I think, most explicitly stated with, like, revolutionize the world part. Um, but I think we also then get, like, like there's the version of that that then gets stated, but then also seems Soji. to be, like, more compromised. But then we also get, like, this other version that is Utena not really being, like, oh, what I want to do is attain eternity and revolutionize the world in, like, these, like, very grand ways, but, like... I just want Anthe to be okay. <laughs> it's like <laughs> kind of Utena's, uh, at least like it, it seems to be throughout 
again, we I think there are stuff that we can like call into question exactly how like pure or uncompromised is like Utena's perspective, but um in general the the series seems to be fairly um supportive of this idea that like Utena is trying to do something good, which is just to like actually liberate Anthe from the system that is like forcing her into these these situations. Um, I agree. Even if that's a misguided attempt. <laughs> I, I agree. But I also think that this arc really questions Utena um, mm-hmm. subtly in, in a lot of ways. Um, specifically in like uh, the confrontation with Soji, um, where Soji kind of calls her out and she like, yeah, she denies it and hits him, but there's, it's. I think it's clear that she... Uh, understands that he's right uh, in some regard about what he's saying. Yeah, um, she hits him in part because he strikes a particular nerve. It's yes, sad. and there is also a one of the other. Uh, I, I would call it a sub theme um, of uh, like drawing from a quote. Um, I think it's either Anthea or Akio. Uh, innocence can hurt others. Um, there is a sub theme around Utena's innocence, like hurting other people, um, or you know, uh, exacerbating like pain or conflict. Um, yeah. So I think this the the arc questions Utena while also like I agree with what you said there about our overall read of her. Um, but yeah, so there's this tension between like the the series is simultaneously like. Um, critically positing, like, uh, or, or or looking at the um, the conflict between like this need for liberation, but then also a need for self denial, um, in a sense of like being defined by others, um, by society in general, um, uh, you know, acting in accordance with norms. Um, I think both of these things are like questioned and affirmed um, in this arc. Yeah. Um, I I think this is also like the, to, to tie it back to our previous series, I think if there is a, both because of like the protagonist thing, and this is almost jumping to the, the other thing I kind of wanted to bring up. Um, like if we are to draw a line of Utena to someone in Ray Earth and, you know, Utena is, is pulling off of the magical girl genre far more broadly. But I, I do think like Sailor Moon and Ray Earth for me are two big ones to point to, especially when it comes to dealing with these queer themes. Um, Sailor Moon also handled this stuff. I would love for us to like try and tackle some Sailor Moon at some time. It's just so fucking long. <laughs> Um, whereas Ray Earth was also fairly long, but I, I love it enough that I made it work. (laughs) (laughs) 2024 Sailor Moon. Look at Sailor Moon is just so fucking long, especially for us to get to like, let's talk about like Sailor Uranus and, and everything going on there with gender and sexuality. Um, but anyway, like (laughs) stuff came before Utena and it wasn't just Ray Earth, but Ray Earth is the one that we've talked about. Um, but I, I think especially in comparison to like Sailor Moon as as a protagonist of you know of that show 
there is a I think a clearer parallel with Utena and um Hikaru from Ray Earth of mm. this like character who is very naive and kind of throws herself into trying to make things right and approaching it with a certain naivete and needing to be tested and needing to like go through the fire in a, in a way to come out the other side and, and hopefully do something like actually important and transformative. Um, but there's like a, a way that their naive optimism about how they can change the world and make it better, like needs to actually confront the realities and, um, go through those tests and like try to come out the other side. And I, I think a lot of that is happening with Utana. Um, and so, yeah, this, this is both the student council saga. We talked about the ways that it tested her sort of, um, like I'm going to just save Anthe from this situation. And again, it is also happening here and we're, we're continuing to get it challenged. And, you know, it's, I think significant if we're talking about arcs that like, Toga is a character who really pushes and challenges Utena on this, as is Soji. Like, the final mm. duels are these big um, points that are, like, really bringing out a lot of what has come up before um, and and putting sort of a point on it. And so, you know, we know that we have two more arcs to go. Um, and one of them is called the <laughs> uh, Akio Otori arc, and one of them is called the Apocalypse saga arc um and we <laughs> we will we will see where this goes but um i'm very excited for it um but yeah i i would agree that like i i think this show does a really good job of finding this balance between we we never f- like fully turn on utena as like like whenever characters are like when soji is bringing up these stuff about utena he's bringing it up in this way where I think we as an audience are brought into this perspective of he is hitting on something that is true. Um, he is hitting on something that she has to like work through and deal with, but he is not seeing the full version of her and his version of it is like far more fucked up than, than hers (laughs) to, to put it crudely. Um, that, that he seems to be like pushing at something that is like her intentions and all of this, like, his intentions are to kill Anthony and install a new person. And hers is just, like, I want Anthony to be free. And I think the show, like, continues to, even as it is, like, complicating this, even as it is challenging it, even as it is, like, calling stuff into question, I I don't think that the show ever, at least to this point, turns on Utena as someone who is, like, fully deluding herself but it is looking at the ways that like even her intentions, which we can see as being like pure and trying to help um, how those things still come into conflict, how those things are still compromised, how she still has to like work through them. Um, and so, and I think it, it, it does that balance really well where I think we can always have in the back of our head, like there's a way that this can break really bad for her. Um, but I don't think we're ever, invite you to really think of her as the villain. Um, yeah, and I think I, it strikes that balance well. Um, so I, I yeah. agree. <laughs> and I think the, the one thing that I would add is like the, 
the tension for Utena is that, like, yes, as you as you point out, like her primary motivation, one one of her motivations is this stuff around Anthe, around like, oh, I just want Anthe to be free um, and to escape this like Rose Bride construct. Um, I think that is like. There is like a, you know a purity and like a goodness to that that the show is not like, uh, that is not being like overwritten. Um, the questionable aspect of that, which remains an open question, is like whether or not Anthe wants this, <laughs> um, and which is a point that like is uh, raised more subtly. Um, I feel like uh, up till now, um, but. Uh, once you consider that, it, it does severely complicate, like, Utena's motivation in that regard. Um, but the, the other big thing is that Utena is also motivated by, like, Utena wants to touch eternity. Like, this constant refrain that, like, Soji, um, like, Toga, Sionji, um, all these people are talking about, like, Utena wants that too. I think that's pretty clear. Um, the problem is that like she is compartmentalizing like her desire to what what she refers to as like meet the prince, which is really like recreating this like mythic time or like it. There's some historical component uh, to it represented by the flashback, um, but it's also this mythic thing. Um, which I think all of these characters are like rightly perceiving, um, is related to their own like desire to access eternity. Um, so that's why Soji's constantly saying, like, oh, you're just like me. Um, in this respect, he is right. Uh, that like, although his desire to like access eternity or whatever is taking on a different form and is more centered on like, um, you know, resurrecting Mamir or whatever, um, it, like, th- they are the same in this respect. Um, and Utena, like, doesn't operate, she doesn't talk about this or, like, operate on this um, in her, like, daily life. Uh, but it is, like, this underlying driving force um, that is not, um, it's not resolved. Like, she still wants this. Um, I think that this arc like makes it clear that no like after the situation with Toga where this was manipulated and like you know his attempt to use this against her was foiled like she hasn't resolved this this is still very much like uh the driving for potentially like the main driving force for her um and uh like that I think is the is the tension with Utena uh right now yeah. Um, the other thing that I kind of alluded to here with, um, and I think it to some degree ties into this like childhood to adulthood focus on sexuality. Um, I don't, I don't think we quite brought this up. Maybe I, I missed you saying it and I like zoned out for a second, but <laughs> um, I also want to like That's call fair. attention <laughs> to, we talked about this briefly with pulling the sword out of Anthe's chest, but like, mm-hmm also how sexualized of an image that is 
Um, and I, I think that's further played up in the way that that like occurs throughout this. And so what I, sure. I think part of, I think part of what all this gets ties into as well, which, um, I feel like it gets most directly like called out with the stuff around, um, Wakaba, but we kind of get it some like more explicitly with Keiko. We also get it a little bit more explicitly with like, um, Kanae, um, it's not brought up as directly with some of some of the other. Cur- I guess we get a little bit maybe with with Mitsuru as well, but I, I think it is like in the milieu of of all of these, which is there is also something that is being tied in here and that is being played with. That one I think is actually like almost metatextually referring to an awareness of like what a show is or like what a story <laughs> is um, that. Utena is the protagonist. She is the main character. Anthea is her betrothed. She is a main character, right? Like, these are main characters. They are characters who matter and are special and are going to be in every episode, um, are, like, key to the the arc overall. They're, they're always going to be there. They're main characters. Um, I think it is significant that all of the duelists here are minor characters, like, you know, Wakaba is the one where she talks the most directly about this, that like, I am not special like Anthea is. And also like Utena is, um, that is like specifically called out by Akio in the, the conversation that they have. Um, but we this also get this Keiko with Keiko. Well. Yeah. yeah. We also get this with Keiko where like, she is, again, I, I joked about it, but like she is Hokuto's lackey who doesn't get to, have a name except they finally give her a name and it's only because this minor character who you might never think is going to become a duelist gets to be a duelist um and that's that's kind of called out and commented on but i think it even comes up with like kana is like such a uh flash in the pan character like we we get introduced to her and then we never hear from her again and she she doesn't even get to pull a sword out of anyone. She's just there to like explain to us how the black rose duels are going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and we, we do get the return of here are some characters, you know, Oh, here we, we get to see Kozue again. We get to see Shiori again. We get to see Mitsuru again, or, you know, Shiori, we get her actually appearing as a character rather than just being a memory. Um, but I, I think the show is very intentionally playing with like the duelists now are the the characters who in the first arc didn't even get to be duelists. They were always on the sidelines. Um, you know, Wakaba is maybe the biggest of them. And she's the one who's the most concerned about how she's just a, a minor character. She's just a side character. She'll get forgotten for episodes at a time and then show up again as, oh, I'm hugging Utena or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. And I think the sh- on one level, there's a certain metatextual referencing of like the way that stories are constructed, but I think it is also then tying it into these broader themes that are, are talking about becoming an adult kind of almost realizing, um, that most people don't get to be special. Um, most adults are not celebrities or whatever, you know, most adults are not changing the world. Um, and also it tying into like the, the sexuality stuff, like most, a lot of people don't necessarily get like their ideal or whatever. Um, and so I think all of this is like mixing together in this way and it's tying into this being a show that I think is 
continually interested not only in our like not only are we talking about how these things play out in society but we are also in telling a story interrogating how stories also talk about these things um this is something that like i i think also ties back to stuff that we talked to about in the previous episode about the way that this series references fables and um these things that are like also tying into um religion and myth and the the stories that we tell which might tie into, I don't know if you, how much you really have about repetition and ritual and, you know, you have here repetition and ritual history and eternity again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, I think all of this stuff kind of gets folded into it through this way that this, sh- this show is more so than a lot of shows. I think aware of its structure as a show and playing with that. Um, and it is highlighting that in some ways through the repetition. And we, we almost get, we still get like, uh, Zatai Unmei, <laughs> um, Mokushi Roku, like mm. that sequence of going up the stairs. But we now get like a new repetition around the duels. We get new repetition around going down the elevator and watching the, uh, butterfly turn into a cocoon, into a caterpillar, into a leaf. Um, we get, also the show we get the like ways that the show will put flowers over things sometimes um this continues to show up we get the framing of the flowers the keiko episode in particular we get like a shout uh, a flower just showing up on screen for a while just hanging out there um we get the hand that's pointing at stuff like this show wants you to be aware of the artifice of narrative the artifice of the show um because i think it is it is also talking about how like shows and narratives tie into all of these other things that they're talking about. Um, so and this is something that I think we'll continue to explore, but I want to like highlight how th- this whole theme that we've talked about is also commingling with this like other theme that we are pointing to. Um, and that I think talks points towards like this meta textual um, approach to telling a story. Yeah, that's that's an I mean, that's an excellent connection. Um, that like, I I hadn't even considered the like connection between those themes. Um, but I think you're definitely right. Um, the the movement to the secondary characters, like for sure. Um, I think you like articulated that really well. Um, it it's interesting to me how like there is like. I mean, this is present in the first arc as well, um, and which we've talked about at length. Um, but even more so in the Black Rose saga, um, there's this kind of ontological blurring, uh, that's happening more aggressively. Um, so there's the stuff around like the secondary characters, like know their secondary characters and, you know, that's tying into like, their identity and stuff around their sexuality. Um, there's also like um, what I think we, we mentioned in the synopses, which is the shadow play is now integrated into like the, like the quote unquote real world. Um, like the, the events of the narrative um, in, in this like fact that it's transpiring behind Utena as she's at her locker um, so literally the frames are, are merged together, um, as opposed to the shadow play being broken off into its own sequence, um, like which it has been. 
Um, so now the frames of the, the worlds are merged and then Utena like interacts with it. <laughs> like she makes commentary to the shadow play um, or, or on the shadow play, like further collapsing, like, you know, these worlds making it clear that she's listening. Um, so there's, again, like there's this blurring of the frame uh, of reality. Um, like, you know, where does this, reality begin and where does it end um and then this of course is like you know hammered home at the end um where like the uh, around um mimia uh specifically where like the photo uh, of mimia like we watch it change um in real time um and like we realize that you know um, like it, this, this photo was an illusion all along. Um, but then this is escalated, like in the final shot of episode, um, 23, where like in, not in a photo, but like in actual, like, f- like physical form, we see the like quote unquote Mimia transform into Anthe, like as she's talking to, um, Akio, um, we also, there's this huge question around, like, um, you know, the, like, historical existence of Soji, um, and, like, whether or not these events actually, uh, transpired. Um, cause, like, they go to the Nemuro Memorial Hall and it's still burned down. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, was it rebuilt? And then all of the shit that we saw in this arc, like, actually happened in the rebuilt Nemuro, like, Memorial Hall? Or was it never rebuilt? And, like, all of this was just also somehow, like, an illusion. Um, you know, point being, like, <laughs> the frame and fabric of reality is, like, you know, blurred uh, even more aggressively now um, than it was um, and that's having impacts in, in all of the, the areas that you, that you brought up. Um, but just to like add more evidence to your point, like we see it happening in all of these other areas as well. Yeah. I, I think, uh, a part that's interesting too is the way that, um, we get a like clearer, the duel ends, the person who was the duelist doesn't remember what happened. Like those memories are erased, um, and so there's a certain amount of like, oh, did the same thing just happen on a larger scale with Soji as the person who like orchestrated all of this? Um, but again, it like it emphasizes this this um, uncertainty around a lot of that stuff uh, that I th- this show plays a lot with an uncertainty in a way that um, I really appreciate. Like I I'm a person when it comes to media that. Um, this is the thing that I sometimes talked about, like Brandon Sanderson stuff, because I, I read some Brandon Sanderson because, you know, friend of the pod, Autumn, and <laughs> their wife and their friend Mark have a Brandon Sanderson podcast called Ars Arcanum. Go listen to it. They just finished uh, Elantris, which is a fucking terrible book. They all agree it's a fucking terrible book. They're going to move on to Bistborn, which they all assure me is a great book. Um, <laughs> I, I read another book that is also a great book. That is um, the way of kings. But one of the things I struggled with is that in a lot of media, I actually really appreciate um, uncertainty around around things. And 
Brandon Sanderson is a writer who often only brings up uncertainty as like a, a hook, like a, a temporary mystery that um, there's kind of a promise that will be solved at some point. Um, everything has a lore answer that is going to come eventually. Um, and I, I really appreciate when things are like Utena is a series that, as we see, will sometimes clarify things, but I think often clarifies things in ways that just further complicate that f- add new uncertainties. Um, and that's just a way of telling stories that I really appreciate. And uh, I want to kind of highlight here as I, I think a strength of the series, which is, you know, you joked about the final two episodes being written by M. Night Shyamalan because, you know, oh, there's some some twists here. But I and I think those twists do still exist in a way where you're like me watching through the Black Rose saga, knowing what it's about now. I can go like, oh, I can see how stuff is being set up earlier on. That's going to get contradicted, uh, contradicted. But um, I, I still think there's like a willingness to leave things kind of unsettled and unanswered and um, bring in answers in ways that like just raise further questions that I, you know, I appreciate yeah. here. I, I think is significant to the way that it's trying to, to talk also about systems and how those like, those things like systems remain really difficult to grapple with things and that like gaining more information doesn't necessarily um, land you in a place where you're like, ah, you know, I, I did some work on the system and now I fully understand it and fix it. Like it continues to deepen. It continues in the way that you were saying before, pushing towards the underground and space widening up. Um, in ways that like you have to then like grapple with new things, um, and that this this show seems very aware of that. Um, I also want to highlight that this is like, I I think this show does a really good job of grappling with um more difficult subjects. Um, I'm sure that there are people who are still coming in here and being like, wow, this show has written a really large check by bringing in things like uh, incestuous desire and like age differences and, um, you know, all all the stuff that's going on. (laughs) Um, Like, yeah, teacher student relationships. Um, And again, this is at a time where um, like I love Park After Sakura a lot. It is a it is a series that wanted to try to be more intentional and uh, more purposeful and, and more positive about stuff that was hinted at in especially Reg Earth, I think. Um, and so notably, that includes uh, talking more directly and, and a little bit more explicitly around like queer relationships. Um, one of the characters in it is like very clearly talked about as having like a crush on Sakura, um, like a, another girl. Um, but then also talked about things like a girl wanting to be with her teacher. Um, and so I think there was also a certain amount of like Japanese media at the time, like trying to grapple with these things and, um, exploding it in ways that like, you know, can't can be uncomfortable in the ways that like it can feel like it's drawing parallels between like queer love and then like 
incest or pedophilia. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, so far, I think Utena handles a lot of this stuff really well, but it is still grappling with like tricky topics and um, is a series that is like largely praised. So, but I think we'll continue to talk about this because it, it is going to continue to like touch on these things. It's not, it's not done with the Nami and Toga, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, two, so two things. So, um, with reference to like your earlier point about um, how like uncertainty is uh, portrayed, or how how uncertainty is like um, woven into the show, um, I think like it, it. I mean, everything you said is right. Like, and this is just part of like the show's DNA. Like, this is what makes. Like, and I know, like, I haven't seen the whole series, but I think it's fair to say, based on what I've seen, like, this is just an aspect of what makes the show what it is. And I think, like, the fact that it does this allows it to create, like, new, uh, certain types of meaning or, like, new meaning um, around these themes. Um, and I think one of the big things for me, like, just to, to add to what you're saying is, like, and drawing on Eliot again here, like human existence has like fundamentally an incoherence to it. Right? Like Yeah. You know like history, like if you strip away like you know, religious meaning or some kind of transcendent meaning um from like history, it's it's easy to perceive it as just like this series of accidents um or like you know mechanistic like um you know chaos that like our lives are just like completely subject to like all of these forces that are greater than us um we have limited agency and then we're just like showered with like horrors and tragedies um and you know oppression and like violence that we have no control over um, it doesn't make sense, and it's like, um, you know, immensely traumatic <laughs> um, to like. And, and again, I'm not making an excuse for like religion that religion solves these things, um, but there's just a basic fact of human existence. Um, also, just like with like human perception and like epistemology, um, you know, there's um, it like an incoherence. Uh, there's all these incoherences to like, you know, how we perceive the world and like gain knowledge and understand the world. Um, like part of the human experience is this, like is grappling with this. Um, and I think like, this is a core concern of Utena and that's why it is like in uh, a certain type of ambiguity and incoherence is part of like the show's DNA. Um, and it's manifesting in like, you know, um, like in the narrative, in the formal devices, um, like how the story is told and like the story itself. Um, and it's, it's creating all of this like, um, meaning around like the fact of this being, uh, you know, a fundamental aspect of human existence. Um, and then this also again ties back into like, um, at least the, the direction that I'm going to go, which is like, um, 
Eliad's like theory of um, like eternal return and um, ritual and myth, um, like as a thing that is um, somehow essential for like uh, human like humans and human culture um, to like grapple with this um, incoherence. I think all of this is happening in Utena. Um, sorry, <laughs> long tension tangent there. Um, the other thing that I uh, want to bring up, and this is responding to like your discussion of um, how like the show handles themes of queerness. Um, I think like there is specifically with around like the linking of like um, gay or lesbian relationships to like, you know, pedophilia or like, um, you know, like incest um, as like kind of like lumping them together as like, Oh, they're all just like deviancies or whatever. Um, I think there's a way like that you can read this into the show um, but I, I really feel like that is, if you do that, I think that is a creation of like, that is a construct of the viewer. Um, and I say this as someone who like, uh, when I was trying to like make notes around the theme of sexuality, um, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like all of these, um, like I was trying to take an inventory of like the sexuality of all of these uh, duelists, right? And like the relationships that it's related to. Um, and I found myself being like, oh, okay, like, well, this one is like about incest. This one's about incest. And then you have like, uh, you know, uh, jury and shiori. And like, oh, that one's about lesbianism. Um, and so I, I hit that point too. Um, but then I like thinking through it, I was like, how much is this just me? Like, it's not the show linking these things necessarily. Like it's, it's me like uh, being trained to like, you know, think this way, like applying this construct after the fact. Um what I think is actually happening in the show is that like the show is just presenting this very wide gaze, like across all of human sexuality or maybe not all of it, but like, uh, you know, a wide swath of like different forms of human sexuality, um, in which like straightness and queerness and incest and like, um, I guess we could say pedophilia um, or like at least some questionable age differences um, are all contained um, and then tying it to like a larger like questions about um, like psychosexual uh, like motivations that just people have. Um, yeah. As opposed to like tying like, I don't think it's grouping um, in that way. 
And I think the temptation to see it as grouping in that way is like, uh, is, is applied from without. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's actually like the text doing that. I think the way that it is inscribed in the text is the way that, so, and this is one of the things with the, the elevator that I, I think comes up a lot for me when I think about this, which again, we talked about how on one hand, the elevator, um, has these parallels or like we can draw parallels to, uh, psychoanalytic therapy about like going and being like asked to like regress into your memories and, um, you know, hypnotherapy as a thing, like the, these ways of like dredging up, like what is the past that is like, um, influencing your current actions. But then also has these parallels with like the confessional, the, the going to church, going into the confessional, um, and like confessing your sins as well. And I think that parallel is intentional. And I think that the show is to some degree playing with like we in the first arc, I was about to say season <laughs> in the first arc, <laughs> um, this show has been like, was I think more intentional about like playing with um, myth and folktale and in that, like also touching towards religion um, and is now bringing in like psychology more explicitly yeah and i think doing that with an awareness of the way that like deviance broadly which includes like homosexuality and again homosexuality is a a created term that was created by like psychology by psychological readings of what's happening with people, but that was still around deviance. Um, in the same way that heterosexuality, you know, as we talked about in the, the Ray Earth episodes, as I, I brought up there, was also brought in specifically talking about like deviant heterosexuality. Um, and so, and like both of those terms are relatively recent within the history of humanity. And yet it is not the the first time that there have been ways of thinking about these um, behaviors as deviant. It was just a, a new framing around it and a new framing of around it that um, was more specifically about identity and how those behaviors mean that you are this type of person and framing it within like a scientific context rather than a religious context. Um, and how in some ways modern queer movements are indebted to this a psychological reading of queerness as a, a thing, as the behaviors that you do to find your identity. And because you then have an identity, you can organize with other individuals who have an identity. And, you know, this is where a lot of activism in, in queer spaces move out of. And a lot of the theory that I'm involved in is ways of like, how do we, how do we maintain this like um, collective action and this like solidarity aspect of it but we move it away from this pathologizing of queerness that is in some ways the root of like homosexuality as an identity um how do we we find new ways of of thinking about that um but i think the show the way that it is inscribed in the show is the way that the show i think is aware that it is playing with the way that society thinks about all sorts uh thinks about sexuality broadly and also thinks about deviant sexuality broadly and so in the way that historically for a very long time queer desire was lumped in with these other forms of deviant desire 
and we can have we can have different opinions outside of this context of like you know especially and i i agree with you this show touches on it and i i think um it it is talking about it a little bit more explicitly but also touches on it in ways that when we talked in ray earth um i kind of talked around it to some degree but like this is happening with like umi and um clef and uh ascot as well this like this idea of like age and like to some degree age difference and there's a certain amount to which it is acceptable for us as viewers because umi is also fairly young but still it is like kind of this elementary to middle school which is again as you're saying like a questionable age difference and i think butts up against pedophilia and i think like i don't think i used the those like i don't think because I don't think we ever specifically talked about pedophilia. I don't think I use that content warning really for Ray Earth, um, but it will probably come up here, <laughs> you know, yeah. for for Utena. Um, and I think it's just because Utena is interrogating it in a more direct way than Ray Earth ever did. Um, but like, it, it, I agree. It's like butting up against it in a way where. Um, at least up until this point, it's not like an elementary school student and then like a, a full adult it's not like um akio and suabuki or something which i i think would like more strongly have this rather than like and yeah. also it is often in utena it's around like suabuki wanting to be an adult which means like desiring nanami not really nanami desiring suabuki like that even yeah, in the I episode where they're dating is like she does yeah. not <laughs> yeah um so that's also like significant but I, yeah, I, I think in some ways, like, yes, we, we are bringing this reading of like the way that it is pulling these things into parallel, but I think some of that is coming in because this show is talking about, um, I think fairly directly the history of like deviance and social norms around it. And also the progression of like that understanding from a purely religious context to a context that is more religion and also this like new scientific framing co-mingled. Um, and that's kind of represented with the the elevator, um, which again, I think like co-mingles both a religious and a like psychoanalytic um, reading. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's the part where I think it is in the show. And it's just because the show is talking about society and for a very long time, um, like the idea that queerness is actually distinct from something like incest is actually also a fairly recent, like distinction. Um, culture, like socially broadly society thinking being lesbians is acceptable. Like that is a breaking away from a way that like, that deviant behavior has historically been framed um for a lot yeah. of cultures at least so like i think that is the way that it is in this show and it's because the show is like talking about all these things but um yeah that's that's a very good point um but i i think that this is like it, just by way of agreeing with you i think like the show is handling all of this critically um and like there's a dimension of, like, I think there is a lot, like, borne out textually to the effect of what you're talking about, which is, like, these are, within the world of the show, 
within like these oppressive systems, like this, there's a repression that is like, uh, like sexuality is being like repressed and it is like, you know, like, and it, it is like the system, uh, God, jeez. Uh, <laughs> um, like, the oppressive systems of the world are, like, classifying sexualities um, and, like, repressing them um, to the point where, like, you know, these people are, um, like, at, like we talked about earlier, um, they're, they're so violently repressed um, that there is now, like, this opportunity for this explosive, like... Um, you know, like violence, um, or, uh, this manipulation. Um, but I also think this is a more important part of what I'm trying to say. Um, there's so much nuance in like the presentation of sexuality and like, I think queerness more widely in the show where it's not like, Queerness is not just like universally marked as like, like a deviance, right? Or even like, or even primarily or even mostly like it is like, you know, we see it like constantly from the first episode. There are echoes of it in like all these relationships in ways that are like not at all marked as deviant. And in fact, like presented as like, I think completely normal and like, positive and unremarkable yeah, um, especially around like utena and wakaba and like utena and anthe um and are, even are the like, two big ones and even jury and shiori like the which i think is the big one of like there's an elevator scene for shiori and it's related to like this relationship she, she has with jury so i think that's the main thing that people would point to if they were like oh, okay lesbianism is being framed like by being yeah, treated with this device, like it's being framed as like, it's being linked to this incest and stuff like that. But that's not at all about like Shiori being attracted to jury. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's more about, so th- this is the thing where I think it becomes a little bit messy and complicated because up until this point, like we can watch the rest and we can say whether or not it like, it does more with Utena and Anthe. Because I, I think up until this point, like there are stuff, especially when it comes to Juri, around Utena almost kind of being naive about the way that she's like kind of in a gay relationship. Um and and not really like like she does not see what is going on with Juri in a way that like Anthe does seem to see. Or like other characters do seem to see. Um, it is one of the things that's like called out as her being naive. Um and they're just like this also gets played up with um Tsubuki, where Tsubuki is talking about adult things, and Utena's like, Oh yeah, like Anthony and I do adult things. <laughs> um and there's a certain amount of like, wait, do you do you know what you're saying? Yeah. Do you do you realize or whatever? Yeah, do you understand the innuendo that you're saying that, like, you kiss and possibly have sex? Or are you saying that, like, you file taxes? <laughs> um, and that, that's and it's never clarified what with. is meant yeah. either. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah it isn't. Um, and so there is an ambiguity that continues to exist around Utena in a way that the stuff with Jury is far more explicit. Um, I'm bringing this up in part. I do agree still that like a lot of what is more fraught with that is the fact that it's like Jury basically loves a straight girl. Um, Jury is like a lesbian who's obsessed with a straight girl who's never going to love her back. Um, at least up until this point, like Shiori's whole thing is like not, oh, I'm also a lesbian. It's like, no, I'm a straight girl who now thinks that I have power over, over this girl because she loves me. Um, and And it is more about like the way that, that women often, um, are like brought into conflict with each other by, by systems. But, um, it is still tangling it up at part of why I'm bringing it up is because like, I agree with you that it's not like uh, this pure, like, Oh, what is deviant or wrong here is same sex desire. Cause again, it is, that's not what Shiori is going through. That's not what she's thinking about when she's going into it. But I think people can still have like uncertainties or questions around it because even though this show is playing at it in other areas, this is the one aspect where it is made more explicit um, and is then included with these like deviancies. So um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that it's not fully the same as some of the other stuff, but um, it is still, it is in this murky area where I could see like listeners who are watching along being like, yeah, like, you know, Autumn may or may not join for later episodes. It's kind of depending on whether or not they actually decide that they want to finish the, the series by then. Um, but, like, they have watched up to the Black Rose Saga, and they're like, you know, people assure me that this this ends, like, that this series is really good and handles things well, and the Black Rose Saga is interesting, but also sure is, like, <laughs> I'm side-eyeing some of this stuff. And I yeah. so I think that the, like... I, I don't want to just say straight up that like, oh, it's not at all mixing these things or that it is like purely the viewer bringing it to it. Because I think it is still there's stuff in the text that it is is pointing towards these things and it, it is lumping in to some degree this homosexuality with some of the other stuff that it's talking about. But um, I also agree with you. It's it's not as like clear cut like oh these are all equivalent um yeah we even we even talked in the previous episode about the way that like the show seemed most sympathetic to towards jewelry um of any of the like student council members and and sort of what they were doing so yes um, uh and like i i I'm not at all. I'm not going to say that, like you know, and if it came off this way, like I, I regret it. But I'm not going to say that, like, if someone's having that reaction, like that they're wrong or that, like, they can't have like some uncertainty around what's going on. Um, and and I am like mindful of my own position in this <laughs> um, as well. Um, so, but I I also feel like. I, I do feel very strongly that like what is happening here is like and in, in our notes uh like 
I class together like these elevator scenes because I think they are like classed in a semi coherent fashion. And the, the Shiori one, I think for me, I think it's like, first of all, Shiori is the one who's pathologized. It's not Juri. Shiori is like, and it is around this stuff with Juri, but the thing with Shiori is that like, she is like, what is revealed is her like sadism that is arising out of like feelings of inferiority. Like she feels inferior to Juri because Juri is like so great. And this is the same with like, um, it's similar to what happens with Kozue and Subuki. Um, this kind of like disempowerment minimization and she wants to like hurt jury or somehow gain power over jury and the revelation that jury is in love with her like for her becomes a pretext to do that like it's not like in that dynamic like i don't see like queerness itself being pathologized i see shiori's like sadism and like the, the the wellspring of it being pathologized in the same way and tied to like Kozue and Suibuki. What's go, what's going on with them? Whereas the way that sh- the show presents Shuri and like her attraction to Shiori, uh, I think is is actually quite sympathetic. And it, again, from my perspective, um, but I, I don't think it presents Shuri as like deviant frankly um i think it's a very like and and that's really what it (laughs) what it boils down to for me um like i don't think it presents jury as deviant and i think it presents like it it does this stuff with shiori but i I don't think it's like implicating queerness in what's going on with like like the, the what's really going on with shiori um and then that like in context with all of these other portrayals leads me to be like, okay, I feel very strongly that like this is, you know, it's not like marking queerness in this way. Um, Although I told you, I respect like that the reading that um, the alternative reading. Yeah. Um, do you have any other like broad themes that you want to touch on? Or I figure we could like kind of go through some of the, the characters a little bit um, as like a final wrapping up as we, we move out of this episode. Um, I think, so I'm not going to talk like about Eliad anymore, really. I don't think um, I'm going to kind of see like where things go <laughs> before doing a whole like production. Um but one of the themes that we uh, kind of highlighted was um, what you mentioned, um, like repetition and ritual, history and eternity. Um, I already talked a little bit about this, but um, another aspect of it that I think is interesting is um, the most of this arc, I was a little bit like thrown off because I was like, oh, okay, well, like, I'm expecting this, uh, this stuff about like, uh, myth and sacred time and eternity to like continue to be in play. Um, and it doesn't really resurface, uh, 
until like the end of the arc. Um, instead, like what the arc is really uh, predominantly concerned with uh, is like this historical event, or you know, historical in quotation marks. Now that we know how the series ends, um, or how the sorry how the arc ends, um, but the historical event of like the all of the students dying, um, like the building burning down, like this, um, the historical event like takes on this weight for the arc, um, and itself becomes like something that is, um, not reenacted, but is like echoing, uh, in a way, uh, like I'm thinking specifically of, um, the like in the basement uh, of the like rebuilt Nimero uh, Memorial Hall is like this morgue where um, I don't think it's stated explicitly, but heavily implied um, that th- there are literally bodies in this morgue. Um, and I think it's implied that it's like the 100 boys or whatever yeah. that, that died. Um they're all wearing these like signet rings um, that they wore when they were alive. Uh, and um, one of the things that happens, as you know from the synopsis, is that when the Black Rose Jewelists uh, are being like whatever enlisted, they're like they take the signet ring off of the like dead boy's hand and put it on them. Um, and then like you know when they lose the duel, the dead boy's body is cremated. Um, so there's some sort of connection between like the dead boy um, and the duelist. And then there's the silhouettes um, that now appear in the duel arena where it's like, you know, again, there's a bunch of them, maybe even a hundred. <laughs> um, I think we're invited to think that like there might be some connection there. Um you know, like, like chalk lines, like you said, dead bodies. Um, it's evoking like, you know, some sort of like mass amount of casualties that have happened in the past. Um, and again, because it's all linked to like, um, the, you know, the Black Rose conspiracy, um, there's, you know, there, there, there's a linkage there. Um, and so there's all this kind of murky, like, all of this history is like um, continuing to be echoed uh, like th- through the present um, in a way that actually um, that's actually kind of interesting. And I don't know if I have a great like final read on it um, other than like uh, it does eventually become tied back in to um, the larger arc at the end where they're like, Oh, these 100 boys were like a sacrifice uh, like f- to you know create the conditions for like accessing eternity or whatever the fuck <laughs> honestly I have no idea what's going on with this <laughs> um, um, but anyway like there's a um, like history is repeating right like history is echoing um, as opposed to like mythic time um, in this arc uh, in a way that I, I thought was like uh, intriguing yeah, and I, I, like, maybe some of this is that I, I just, 
like I knew this ending more. Like I knew the end of the arc going into this, and when we were talking last time, and I kind of know the series more. That like for me, I I see some of what's happening as the show being uh, somewhat interested in the way that even historic events can become mythologized and become mythic time um from the the standpoint of the present like um and so i i think that's one of the things that's being played with is like to what degree is this history to what degree is this myth um to what degree does that matter for the present um are both history and myth like um kind of working in the same being blended like yeah yeah because so much of this arc too especially like as revealed at the end is the way that um memories are compromised uh history is compromised the these things get um rewritten and retold as illusions of the events and and not as the reality um and i think this this show is aware of the way that like History is a constructed thing in the same way that myths are. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that memories the, are. Yeah, in the same way that memories are. The 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 history that we are given is not necessarily the historical, like, the true fact. It, it is the story that is told about the past. Um, and there are all sorts of societal um, things inscribed in it, even beyond the, like, very clear examples of, like, you know, the adage of history is written by the winner or the, the conqueror. Um history is always being framed in a certain way. It is always being interpreted in a certain way. And that interpretation just becomes the history. Um, and I think that the show is aware of this as it is like playing with this. So, um, but I, I, I do agree. I think it's like really in the end where the show makes this more explicit and makes this more clear that, um, as it's been talking about history and memory kind of throughout this arc, that's always been sort of tied into this like mythic time. That's more clear in the, the um, first arc. And it, again, I think is also interesting, play, interestingly playing with the, the ways that um, I don't think this is doing it in a, in a like shitty, uninteresting way, but the <laughs> is also kind of aware of the way that like um, science is distinct from religion in many ways. And yet also still kind of, fills the role of religion in some people's lives um and so you know the the way that it is talking about like the religious parallels of the elevator as a confessional as well as the like more scientific psychoanalytic uh psychological framing of it um i think i think it is like talking about how these things are actually related um in an interesting way and not just in a have you ever just thought that science is the new religion, man? <laughs> like, um, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess to, to wrap this up, we can go through some of the... Um, I'm just going to keep wanting to be let in. Uh, we can go through some of the actual duelists and, and see if there's like anything else that we kind of just want to bring up around... You know, I think going through the duels is a good way to to think about the individual episodes a little bit. Um, do you um do you want to start with Soji and Mamiya first? Um, I know we've talked about them, but yeah. specifically how they're like of how they're visually mapped to Utena and Anthe, how they're kind yeah, of like I think, a foil. I think we can touch on that a little bit. 
Um, yeah, I think it, you, you mentioned this, uh, towards the end of our last episode. Um, but Soji and Mamiya are, um, pretty obviously a visually mapped to Utena and Anthe. Um, and it doesn't stop there. Um, they're, they're basically a, a foil, I think pretty clearly. Um, they seem to have a similar personality dynamic, um, where Soji is a little bit more like, you know, bossy and aggressive and Mamiya is a little bit more, um, passive, uh, for the most part. Um, then, of course, Anthe tends to her roses. Uh, Mamiya is also obsessed with the roses. Um, except he... It seems like he has one, but he actually kind of has several black roses. Because um, we know because he runs out. Um, and yeah. then, uh, most importantly, uh, Soji's uh, goal is to make Mamiya uh, the Rose Bride. Um We've learned this in exchange that you referenced earlier. Um, So instead of like, whereas Utena wants to free Anthe from being the Rose Bride, uh, Soji wants to make Mamiya the Rose Bride. Um, So there's kind of an, uh, like, you know, um, inversion there. Um, And then a kind of one-to-one mapping um, elsewhere. Uh, And I think it... This is another point where continuing our discussion from last time like it's complicating our understanding of Utena and Anthe um it's not enough to just like have a like having a female prince is not like an inherent solution for you know oppression and violence um because we get the villains here who like their their goal is to have a male bride so yeah. Um, just simply it's even, over- <laughs> it's even called attention to like Mamiya being like, well, wouldn't I be the Rose groom? And Soji being like, well, Rose bride sounds better. Like <laughs> you're going to be the Rose bride. Um, we will have more opportunity to talk about, uh, what's going on with gender and Rose bride, uh, later. So, you know, we, we can maybe save that and dive into it more later, but, um, yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> But uh, just drawing attention here, like, this is further developing what we touched on last time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't want to, like, fully dwell on, oh, boys or Rose Bride, because uh, without giving away too much, we will, we will be able to talk about this more later. So. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> we're, we're not done with gender. Um <laughs> Believe it or not, this is a well, show that shocking. continues to be interested in gender. Um, yeah, this is like it, it is interesting the way that it like it kind of provides an inversion as well. This, um, you know, as you pointed out, the like wanting to make Mamiya the Rose Bride rather than wanting to make uh, Himemia, and I think the the Mamiya Himemiya here is intentional. Yeah, it's a, it's a, good, a to, good observation. Yeah, to, <laughs> to free her from from being the Rose Bride. So, um, yeah, and I, I think a lot of it, uh, it, it becomes one of the, like, the core contrasts here. Um, 
um, there's some other thing that you, you said, and I had a thought on it and I, I don't remember what that thought was. It was towards the very beginning of what you were saying, but, um, yeah, I, I think some of the other ones, if we, do we, do we want to talk like maybe we, we'll just go through the, the like duelist, I think at this point. Yeah, um, sure. When it comes to Otori Kanai, I don't know if I have too much here. Oh, I guess the the one thing I will bring up is I kind of talked about this previously, but um, to kind of co- go down the line real quick, um, we we talked a little bit about how a lot of these characters kind of have a fixation on um, or related to Anthe. Um, so Kane is jealous of Anthe, uh, sort of suspicious of her and the way that she's obstructing her relationship with Akio. Um, Miki is jealous of Anthe, you know, sees the, uh, attraction that Miki has to Anthe and, and wants to like control and possess him. Um, but you know, he has this other, he has eyes for another girl, um, with Shiori, this is the one that I think is the least, like, easy to connect with Anthe. Um, although we still get a certain amount of, like, Shiori talking with Anthe um, about what's going on. Um, uh, but, you know, more tenuous connection there. Um, there's a stuff with Tsuabuki and... Uh, Nanami, what I what I think is interesting here is specifically around Tsubuki, there's not much of a fixation on Anthea, although again, there's a certain amount of like talking to Tenna and Anthea and getting suspect advice, including like, oh, you just need to do adult things. Yeah. Um which might even come from Anthea if I remember correctly. No, it's Utena. Um, Utena's like Okay. You need experience. That's what yeah. an adult like being an adult means. Um, and then Anthea well, is one the of the one things who's like Oh, we we do adult things, don't we? And yeah. everyone's like, mm, "What?" <laughs> um, but yeah, one thing I think is interesting here is even though Tsuabuki is, is not directly fixated on Anthe here, um, we do get kind of in this like I'm also grouping in here the stuff with Nanami, where the cowbell, despite being a a very very silly jokey episode, um, does in a weird way suggest like Anthe is the one who orders the cowbell. Um, and I think like the end kind of reveals like, Oh, it was for her cow named Nami. Um, but there's also a certain amount of like, why was it presented to like Kiryu and Nami in the first place? Yeah. It's um, a little bit incredulous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anthe's explanation. Um, Wakaba again, as we talked about jealous of Anthe, um, then uh, Keiko and Toga, this one again, not super linked to Anthe. Um, I forget if there's anything else that could potentially connect Anthe here, um, but I, I think it's significant how many of these end up involving Anthe. Um, sometimes yeah. less directly than others, but a lot of them have a fixation or are kind of in the Anthe's in the milieu. Um, so yeah, but yeah, um, if we want to run through the actual characters here, or if you have immediate thoughts on that, that point that I just wanted to like pull out. <laughs> yeah. I think Anthe comes into play for, um, a couple very, uh, like strongly, um, 
I think uh, I made reference to like a categorization um, that I, I think I'll just like talk through here because um, I referred to it and I don't want to just like leave that in the dark. Um, I see like Kozue, Shiori, and Suabuki are all like there are like it, it gets channeled in different ways but like all of them when they're in the elevator like ultimately describe like disempower like a feeling of disempowerment and like minimization and insignificance like for Kazue it is Miki um where she feels like somehow like dwarfed by him um in like his like accomplishment and his composure and like you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um and you know so she tries to like hurt him and gain power over him by like you know in inciting like sexual jealousy in him or whatever um and ultimately like and this is also kind of like imbricated with this kind of like incestuous attraction as well um but but rooted in this kind of like disempowerment um that one becomes channeled towards anthe because like she wants to like it's there's a sexual jealousy component she wants to like possess miki um but as we know he loves anthe um with shiori which like we uh, went into before but um she has the same like complex except it's on fixate on jury where jury is so she perceives this excellence in jury uh and feels like you know um insignificant disempowered like minimized um by that excellence um and so she wants to have the power to hurt her um which like you know she does and then this one like i, I think has like you're right that shiori is like talking with utena and anthe throughout the episode like in general um but it i don't think like shiori's desires are like channeled towards anthe it's more about like having power um yeah. and then like it's kind of the same with suabuki where he's like um he has like how do i describe this uh like complexes around like boyhood and manhood and like wanting to be a man um, and having like this kind of like burgeoning, like sense of sexuality, um, but then feeling like frustrated and like, you know, minimized um, and disregarded. Uh, and then like, he says, you know, I want to be a man like and wreck the world. So he's just like lashing out in sexual frustration. He wants the power to do that. Um, and so again, that's like a power thing. Um, so those three, I think are like connected, um, in that it's rooted in the same, like disempowerment complex. Um, Kanae, uh, is like, she talks about Anthe, um, and she says that like, oh, like Anthe is like an alien. Her eye, like she freaks me out. Um, I can't bring myself to like her. And also my father's started getting really sick. 
ever since Anthe like came around. Um, but so there's like a paranoia element. Um, but given what we learn about Akio <laughs> at the end of the series, um, I think there's like a malaise around Akio that like Kanai is perceiving and is and like projecting onto Anthe. Um, yeah. just my like opinion. <laughs> um, and, and Anthe has like some weird shit going on with her too. So, you know, fair is fair, but like the Akio Anthe thing is weird. And like, I think Kanai is, uh, projecting onto Anthe when it's not only about Anthe. Um, yeah. And then like Wakaba and Keiko, like, um, are i mean i think you nailed this earlier when you were talking about like the metatextual read um this really applies to like kazooie shiori and subuki as well but especially wakaba and keiko um they're like relegated to normalcy um and then respectively sayonji and toga are like a pathway for them to like affirm themselves and become like special in some way. Um, but of course, Sionji is in love with Anthe, so then Wakaba, like, it gets directed towards Anthe. And then Keiko, like, it's Nanami, so it has nothing to do with Anthe. Um, and the show is kind of like, it is a little bit awkward when it's like all of the duelists are kind of giving their manifesto when they're like dueling Utena about, like, oh, now I'm like, I want to do this. Um, and it was like somewhat amusing to me for the ones who like don't have any beef with Anthe, just being like, "Yeah, now I'm going to kill Anthe now," and like because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It was like marginally amusing, but that's like I mean that's my take on it. I think they're like paired up. Oh, and then uh, Mikage has like his own thing going on. Um, yeah, I think that's about like. The whole deal about, like, so there's stuff about, um, like, him being trapped in his memory and, like, yada, yada, yada. Um, but there's also a sense that, like, he wants to, like, resurrect Mamiya or something by making Mamiya, like, the Rose Bride. Um, like, he wants to kill Anthe so Mamiya can become the Rose Bride, but Mamiya's dead. Um yeah. But, like, the power of the Rose Bride, or, like, is somehow, like, this linked with this eternity deal. Um, so, I, that, I think, is, like, its own separate thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and a thing that has the, the most questions around it still. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, that, uh, Sorry for like hijacking that, but um, no. I see like a structure um, in in the way that like the the duelists are arranged. Yeah, um, I guess I'll put it on the table. You you can let me know if there's any other characters that you want to focus on as well. The one I don't have too much to say about uh, Tatsuya Kazami. It's probably like I'm not going to say that there's nothing interesting in it, but it's probably my least favorite episode of this arc um i think it is doing a little bit of interesting of like there are people who 
uh, even for like what's happening here are just like too inconsequential <laughs> um, are are <laughs> yeah. not are not connected like it's like come on man like one you didn't even really seem that interested in in wakaba until like she seemed interested in you two she's not even like a duelist so what the fuck are we doing here um like yeah. you're not gonna draw Waka- a sword like, out of her chest like <laughs> yeah in the same way that like wakaba is being relegated to secondary status by like being dumped by sionji yeah. like <laughs> Kazami is relegated to tertiary status by yeah. being dumped by Wakaba. It's like, no, dude, you're not even. So- Soji's just like, dude, what the fuck are you doing here? You weren't even invited. Yeah. <laughs> just get out. Um, but and so, like, to me, some of the point of it is showing the like, it is emphasizing the way that like, even though these are these people who are are what would be like these secondary characters, these side characters who like get their moment to be a duelist. Um, it's not just that, like any side character can have this role. Like even Keiko who seems so minor still has like this connection to the overarching plot that allows her to, to step into this. Whereas like, you know, I, I think it is like somewhat important for setting up, also what's happening of like how is this how is this really complicating some of the stuff that's like happening with the duels and with utena and and anthe and i think like it is specifically marking out this no it's not just anyone who comes here it is like specifically these people one that like have this level of uh direct attachment to you know the this degree of connection (laughs) <laughs> to what's happening with the whole dueling system or whatever. Um, but then also I think to some degree calling attention to um, like the, the way that there are like specific plans that are at stake here and it, and also the way that like, it's specifically about these very intense like desires and re- repressed feelings and um Kazami is almost playing at it for a moment being like, Oh, I was rejected by Wakaba. And it's like, dude, you like, you wrote a love letter to Utena. You like, you didn't fucking care until you thought that she liked you. <laughs> like yeah. what, yeah. what are you on? Um, but I think that's the most <laughs> that I want to say about the, the Kazami episode. The bigger thing is I just, I want to talk a little bit more about Crow High, but before we do that, I don't know if there's any other character stuff you want to talk about from other episodes. Um, to like, like quick hitters so um one weird thing that happens is that utena and you as you you point out in our notes uh utena is repeated like seen repeatedly going to speak with akio herself yeah um which is is quite odd um and especially the ones where it's just her alone without um without anthe there yeah um, and it's like the way that it's presented is very abrupt. It's like there's the initial meeting of like Utena. Utena meets Akio and Kanai um, with Anthe. And then like immediately thereafter, we start seeing like Utena is just like hanging out with Akio, <laughs> like by herself, um, talking about like God knows what, um, mainly constellations. Um, but also just like life stuff. And also, um, I sh- like, 
the depth of conversation that they're having, not only the fact of them hanging out together alone, but the depth of conversation that they're having um, is very striking. Uh, And I don't know if this is going to be like elaborated more as we go. Um, But uh, the, the thing that really stood out to me is um, in episode 18, where like, this is a Suwabuki um, episode, I believe. Um, she's talking to Akio and she's like, oh, is it weird to dream about my prince? Um, which in context, like, we, I think we could easily understand that she's like talking about sexual fantasy. Yeah. Um, and like, what? <laughs> Why is she having this conversation with Akio? Um, so yeah, that's, that's my two cents on that one. Um, you, you made the note, so I don't know if you had more to say. (laughs) Um, no, I, I think, I think like that, that hits on some of the, the main stuff here. Um, it, it is, yeah, it, it is just often like this interesting thing because of, um, Again, we've kind of touched on this, but like, there's also an implied sexual relationship between Akio and Anthe, um, and so there's like this strange confusion that I think happens when then Utena's there speaking to Akio, like almost seeking advice. Um, yeah, we we will have plenty more time to talk about Akio <laughs> in okay. the next arc. In the um, Akio arc, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so do, do we want to talk a little bit about Grow High stuff? Um, Just to have a little bit of fun at the end here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so, I mean, obviously we, we've talked about the Cowbell episode, which is just extremely, um, this like bizarre Crow High, uh, almost parody of the show itself. Like, I think especially the it's doing how a lot of the duels go, but I think we could like more directly see it almost parodying the, the first arc. But um, again, like the removing the bell from Nanami's neck to like revert her back to normal. I get, I mean, I guess it's also sort of parodying the like stuff that's happening with people um, seemingly like possessed or transformed when they become the, the black rose duelists. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, having the, the flower, uh, taken off of their lapel and in this case it is um utena like with a uh what's what's the uh thing she has oh the, um, um, it's like a, a pitchfork um taking the bell yeah. off of nanami's neck and like with a red sweater bullfighting um that <laughs> anthony just brings out oh i i knit you this red sweater um, yeah she's like knitting this red sweater throughout the entirety of the episode and then she yeah. just like has it completed exactly at the crucial time hmm. <laughs> um but yeah and so like some of it is like pointing at these like in very jokey ways that are are um out of tone with a lot of this arc pointing at like some of these uncertainties around Anthe and like what role is she playing in all of this um, is kind of playing at some of these themes, but in like a very different funny way. Um, 
in in ways that like <laughs> maybe we'll continue to talk about like what what is going on with Nanami and animals because she keeps being linked with animals but um she's <laughs> cute when she has the little uh like cow horn uh hairband on it's a good look <laughs> but anyway <laughs> yeah. um and like the cow print top yeah um one of the other things that that actually kind of stood out to me on this rewatch um, is so one of, one of the moments in Krohai that also really gets to me uh, because I think it, it points at something that's like going on with Kermadi High School is where they're walking through the schools and uh, it's um, like Kamiyama and uh, oh I'm. Hayashida, and they're both talking about like how nothing interesting ever happens basically um it's just a very boring school and then in the background all these things keep happening um most notably like the there's multiple moments yeah, yeah there's the ufo which has also come up in utena um but also notably Midas had being bitten by a horse which i i joked about with the like um bullfighting previously which again is like kind of getting called up here but like the bull chasing after um nanami in the the episode with like nanami and toga um but there's this moment and it's it's in episode 14 where um people are commenting i think it might be wakaba um but there's it's like they're commenting about how nothing ever happens here. And then we cut to like Soji with the photo of Utena's Prince or, you know, um, Mamiya sitting on his desk. And that's where like the professors come to bribe him. And then it comes up again, like, Oh, nothing exciting happens here. It's too quiet. And then Utena opens her locker and sees the, the first um, challenge in the form of like a note in her locket uh, locker. And then we get the, the change with the way that the, the shadow plays are, are working as well. Um, we kind of get this thing here in this episode too, about how like nothing exciting happens. Um, and I think like <laughs> in, in a way, I, I think um, whether accidentally or intentionally um, there's something happening in Utena that then also happens later in Crow High about this, like playing with um the like ordinary life and that the focus of the show is on the, the like weird, strange things that disrupt your ordinary life. Um, because both of them are kind of playing with the, like, Oh, these are just high school students. And yet the plot is all the like weird off the wall shit that's happening. Um, and so I think this is like a weird connecting thing here that again like part of me wants to just like sit down with Eiji Nonoka and be like to what degree are you just referencing Utena because I just keep seeing it I just keep seeing it now I can't yeah, unsee well, it that's, um we we have a we have a podcast where you're gonna we're gonna get that interview yeah <laughs> god if we manage that'll be fucking incredible <laughs> um but yeah it, it, it is just like you're like, um, like interesting uh, Adrian Nonica, like we are, we're scholars of Cromarty High School, and we're doing a series uh, where we look at the manga in depth. Um, we've already covered the the anime, um, but yeah, we're we're Crow High scholars. Um, we're wondering if you're willing to uh, give us an interview and just talk about some of these uh, questions we have. <laughs> um, I think that's a good pitch. Yeah. First question: Have you watched? 
<laughs> um, Revolutionary Girl Utena. Second question: To what degree has Revolutionary Girl Utena influenced Grimardi High School? Specifically, um, these exact scenes. Yeah, <laughs> with timestamps um, included. But yeah, it is this thing of like, like I don't know if I have a big final point here, but I think there's something at work here that I, in seeing this parallel that I'm seeing around like a playing at ordinary versus like the peculiarities of narrative. Um, and I notice it specifically when it comes up in these jokey ways where I, I can also kind of see a certain, um, similar approach to humor. Um, even in some of the stuff with how stuff with Kazami is framed is around like extended internal monologues of people misunderstanding and then like reveals of their misunderstanding. Um, like the snails thing. The yeah. That's classic. Um, Kruai, the way that yeah. is like sequenced. But even, even though it's in a slightly more serious context, like I'm even saying the stuff around like, Oh, the misunderstanding of everyone like Utena thinking that Wakaba has a crush on Kazami and that's what this is all about. And then telling Kazami and Kazami finally understanding and then going, and then also the misunderstanding that happens during that conversation, like that, like, like completely face at, plants. Yeah. <laughs> um, all of that, like also feels like it is like playing in the similar space where so much of cry high for me is a joking at the way that like, um, societal norms or societal pressures like make you have to like consider your actions in this way that that becomes the like focal point of the joke of crow high and i think utena is also doing it and is doing it sometimes in the jokes and is then also doing it in this like more serious way that we've been discussing but um i do just think it's very interesting how like both of these series seem to be hitting on similar things and that the root of all of it for me seems to be this like thinking about the individual and their place in society and how society like puts these expectations on you that you have to like contend with. Um, and Crow High just kind of always remains in the, the realm of comedy with that um, in a way that obviously Utena does not, but <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, like, there is there's a compelling argument to be made there um that there's at least like an influence um that you can trace this to like utena um i think it's related to the larger play that we're talking about with like um various permutations in and around like uh like quotidian and exceptional or like ordinary and extraordinary um that is happening in utena um where it's like playing with um it's very preoccupied with like not only the arbitrariness um but also like the repression of like social systems and social norms um but then also like at the same time uh like affirming their their existence um and also and also like their necessity in in some way as like a structuring device um and uh yeah crow high uh seems to 
<laughs> um, break like more radically with the latter point um, <laughs> and just like fully cast that uh, notion into like parody. Um, whereas like Utena is kind of is, is balancing it um, a little bit more. And, and you know, that's why you get these like random, like the comedy is often like contained into like dis- distinct episodes, you know? Yeah. Um, at least so far where there are like eruptions uh, of this comedy. Um, and then it takes like, it's very minimal uh, in the, in the other episodes. Um, so there's kind of like that. Yeah. Like you said, like the, uh, the comedy is not like primary in Utena, but the style of the comedy when it emerges is like, it's playing along the same lines in, in a, uh, a similar way. Yeah. Um, anyway, can you believe yeah. that there are lists that tell people to skip the Nanami turns into a cow episode? <laughs> that's fools. Fools. Yeah. That's, that's a malpractice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, you gotta like, those people don't appreciate Crow High either. Yeah. So on Ghost Divers, we don't acknowledge you if you don't appreciate Crow High. Um, um, anyway, this has been yet another commercial for the Pondering Puton p- podcast that will uh, be starting in summer of next year. <laughs> wherein we, we become the world's preeminent scholars of Cromarty High School. Yeah. Um, also, um, I had this note in here, and I'm really sad that you didn't. <laughs> um, that you didn't notice I, it. I saw it. I saw it. So, yes, in episode 17, there's a moment where um, Mamiya pricks his finger on a rose. Um, it turns out that he's doing this intentionally to prove a point, which is that it is ready to be plucked. The The thorns are fully grown. And also to, to talk about this, like, need to put a parasite into um the hearts which then kind of gets like cast as the the continuing love that uh juri has for shiori um but yes soji does suck the blood out of mamiya's finger thanks for taking a note of this and calling attention to it connor Um, okay yeah i just wanted to i wanted to make sure to highlight that one Um, yeah (laughs) so so let's wrap this up do you have any other things to embarrass me about um, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'll, I will, uh, I'll be merciful and limit it to just one tonight. Um, next time we will be watching the Otori Akio saga, which is, uh, episodes. Did I, did I update this and get it correct? Yes. Uh, episodes 24 through 33 of revolutionary girl Utena. Um, as a note, 24 is one. I, I always kind of see it grouped as part of the Akio Otori saga and I, I think that's appropriate uh, but it is one that I think is sometimes considered a little bit more of a fillery episode so um, it's still fun well have fun <laughs> uh, I think it, it is appropriate to end the Black Rose saga with the defeat of Mikage Soji but um, yeah we'll watch those 10 episodes um any final comments before I start just really getting into it, Connor? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm satisfied with we've covered all the important notes now. 
Okay. Well, if you want to write into the podcast with any questions about, um, you know, this show or previous shows that we've talked about or blood, uh, you can write into at ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> please support the Export Audio Network. You can go to exportaud.io, which takes you to the Patreon, patreon.com slash exportaudio. Um, and, you know, if you do a dollar to the network, then you get early access to a bunch of export audio shows, not ghost divers. Um, because for the most part, it's it's like, like (laughs) the the real reason is it's basically shows that, um, Nora and autumn like edit because they're the ones who upload it. Although I have for the time being taken over, uh, editing duties of ornate stairwells but but autumn still then uploading it early uh so you can listen to my other podcast ornate stairwells by going to exportaudio slash ornate stairwells that's the public feed um if you just subscribe to the patreon you'll just get it a week early in the the patreon feed um it's a movie podcast and we talk about movies um you can follow our podcast at ghost divers pod on twitter uh you can follow me at fox Nia on twitter where can people follow you connor uh y'all can follow me at rebelies r-e-b-b-l-e-a-i-s and uh you can also follow me at garfred aloud to watch me read garfield aloud into a camera or now you can go to fox on uh tiktok and i cross post all of my garfred alouds over there so um you have now two locations where you can get all of your Garfield being a read aloud content. Did you, um, uh, did you update Jimmy on that yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs> See you next time. Everyone.
Um, let's do a time that is clap. Okay. Let me refresh this. Uh, 53. Okay. Okay. Um, any, any jokes you want to make? Uh, nope. Nope. No jokes. I got them all out. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully, uh, um, hopefully my commentary on like the, um, uh, like deviancy, like pathologies and queerness stuff was was fair. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I just wanted to like continue to to assert the. I I think things are a little thorny to to get us back to sucking blood. Uh, <laughs> things are a little bit thorny oh, with yeah. it. Um, yeah. In a way where, again, like, lots and lots of queer people love this series. But um, I I think it is useful to think about the ways that some of this stuff is a, a little bit messy here as actually part of what, like, makes it strong for me. Um, in the same way that I talked about in Ray Earth, where, like, the messiness is part of what actually makes it work for me. Um, in a way that, like, very clean... Uh, quote unquote, like this is the proper representation stuff. Sometimes actually doesn't hit at some of the actual messiness of, of like being queer and and having to grapple with the ways that like even in modern society, what you are is still viewed as to some degree deviant. Um, yeah. But but also not that this show is just like. And being a lesbian is the exact same thing as like incest. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I think like, it, you know, I still, I don't have all the information because we haven't finished the series or whatever. Um, but like my strong feeling is like, is, is what I said. And obviously that's born out of like, you know, in part, like I'm not affected by that. Like, I don't perceive this stuff in the same way. So I don't have access to, like, that, you know, like, that realm of perception. Uh, but, yeah, I, I wanted to get the argument out there as to, like, you know, this this is really, I feel like this is a very strong argument. So I wanted to frame them up so, like, they're there. And then, you know people can make of it what they will um, or right into the question bucket and, you know, have another opinion, have another read. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that like I was fair what I said. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm kind of excited about the fact that we talked about the entire Black Rose saga and especially when we like cut out the little bit at the beginning and the end, it's like probably right around three hours. Um, it's not even midnight yet. This is incredible. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I've been like thinking 
how should I put it? Um, you know, I'm always like willing to like, I'm always thinking about like how I can tweak like my approach. Um, and like, I'm always open to like experimenting with how we do it, you know, um, just like yeah. we did tonight. Like you want to change it. Like I'm always open to like trying new stuff. Um, but I'm also just like, I know I'm also like learning as we go, um, like how to do a podcast. And so I'm thinking often about like, how can I like make this more listenable? Um, and like concise. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, I'm trying to cut down on the like uh, amount that I just like repeat myself and explain the same thing over and over again, um, and make it more concise. Uh, so like, you know, cause asking someone to listen to like three hours is a lot. Um, and that like, I have no problem with it being three hours because of, you know, we've discussed this, like, we're just going to yeah. do, do like wh- however we want. And then people can like take it or leave it. Um, and we are like proud of doing good work and that's all, that's all that I need. Um, but I'm also just like, if I'm going to ask someone to listen to three hours, like I'm going to try to be like, uh, I also know it would be onerous to like uh, have to listen to like me say like make the same argument over and over again. Um, so I'm trying to be attentive to that and be more concise. Um, yeah. Because it's like you know we're talking for three hours and I get like lost in the flow. I think it's <laughs> it's easy to do that. Um, yeah. And not remember that, like, as the listener, it's like, oh, yeah, like, this is already, you, you, like, made this argument, and, like, I understand and agree. Like, I, I still remember this. It's only been an hour, but I still remember that, like, <laughs> like, you don't have yeah. to, you know, re- represent it. One of the things, like, you, you take far more notes than me, but one of the things that I really try to think about when we're going into recordings is just, like, how am I going to try to structure this conversation? Like, can I, can I put some sort of structure forward that will then help us guide it where it will be a good, like fairly listenable conversation. And I, I, you can tell me if you feel differently. I feel like this structure actually went really well. Um, And I, I was kind of continuing to do like this episodic structure um, because I think for stuff like, Especially for Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell is such an episodic show that, like, I still think that's the proper structure for that. Even as, like, we can look at our Ghost in the Shell episodes and say, like, eh, we probably would have, like, pulled a little bit less from, like, some of the theory stuff that we didn't really dive into and things. Um, And also the way that we just talked about that series so much that um, I feel like we didn't have as much like good back and forth because we already knew each other's points so much. Yeah. But we um, just unleashed the like, like contents of what we had already hashed out. Yeah. But like part of me and I I kind of was gearing towards this with some of the regular stuff. And I, I think I just like I hadn't fully thought through how to do it really intentionally and like explain that to other people 
I was kind of starting, like, I was having far larger groupings of episodes for Ray Earth than we kind of had previously because I was kind of seeing, like, oh, there's so much jumping around that can happen here with, like, what's going, especially second season. First season is far more episodic and, like, contained within episodes. And so when I got to Utena, it was like, this is a thing where it could be very tempting to just go episode by episode because they have their own little contained story. But I think it actually is more helpful to just kind of get all of it out at the beginning of like, here's the overall arc. Here's everything we're talking about. Now let's just really dive into themes and jump around between episodes. So again, correct me if you feel like this didn't get at like stuff that you would want to say, but I feel like this actually went really well and helped us like focus on what we're really talking about, which is themes and then how they relate to the content um, and let us kind of put those forward first and then just point at all the episodes as we went um, yeah. in a way that like gives it more conciseness. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think my one worry was that like um, it's it's interesting, like, I I do feel, I, I was reflecting on this after last episode, because when we finished our last episode, I felt like, I was like, yeah, like, I feel really good about this. Um, I was reflecting on it, and I was like, you know, I feel like we've, like, I mean, you've gotten a lot more practice than me, because you have, like, um, ornate stairwells, and you also guest on on other podcasts. So you've done a lot more podcasting. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, I always thought we like did a good job and I think our ghost in the shell stuff is, is great. Um, but I can kind of tell that we've gotten like better. Um, even like starting from a point where I like, are we were good. Like, um, I feel palpably like, Oh yeah, we've gotten better. on like, the the fine like points of like steer like structuring this and steering this on the fly even though um our style is like i think our style makes it hard to structure things <laughs> um somewhat and we just because we're a lot we're just kind of like structuring it on the fly to a large extent um yeah but i don't know i, I just i feel really good about like um, I personally feel like, you know, more comfortable and it feels like, uh, the, the flow and rhythm is like, uh, working really well. Um, and, and I, I felt that tonight as well. Um, yeah. so, um, but yeah, the thing that I was worried about was like, oh, having the like the grouping it around the themes is great i love doing that as you can probably tell <laughs> um but i was like yeah i'm, I'm worried that i'm just gonna like because i know you like to uh just kind of respond in the moment and i'm like i'm worried that i'm just gonna throw these notes in like 30 minutes before you're not gonna get a chance to see them and then i'm gonna come and be like here's this like 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 overwhelming like rant about this like theme and then i'm just like all right respond <laughs> and that's really hard to do 
Um, but I, I didn't feel like it was a problem. Yeah. Um, it, it is this thing of like, cause ornate styles is just such a different show because, um, autumn and I just watch the movie and then neither of us take notes. We're just joking around the entire time watching it together. And then we get on a mic and we just talk about it. Um, and so it's all just us bouncing back and forth and having something in our head of like, this is what I want to talk about. Um, and I think that's just the way that I, I found actually works best for me is like do minimal notes. Um, for the most part with ghost divers, it's just because I have to watch the episodes over the course of like a week. Um, and by the time I get to the end of the week, I'm not going to remember shit from the first part. So I kind of just jot down notes so I can like remind myself and hold it in my head. Um, but so much of the discussion is me having stuff that's just roughly going to remind me of things that are in my head um, and be able to just pull those out and, and like a bounce off of things. So, um, okay, that's good. Yeah. But I, I might, I might head out. We, sure. We've yeah, now hit, right. Yeah, we've now hit after midnight by just a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's one a.m. over here. So, um, um, I've also been a little sick, although I've been feeling progressively better today. Um, it, in terms of illness-wise, um, I I'm getting cramps, but I think it's period starting. So, <laughs> okay. Well, I hope uh, I hope you feel better on that front soon too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope you feel better in all respects. In uh, in the very near future. Yeah. Good night. All right. Good night. See ya. Recording now. Okay. Um, let's do a ten dot is clap right at the top. Okay. Let's do fifty five. It mine just totally skipped fifty five as a number, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, I think it was fine. What what is time? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, if you think it's fine, then we'll we'll go with that. Um, I I was clinging too tightly to the memories of the illusion, and I froze time for a second, and it just hung at fifty four. <laughs> oh shit! Okay. Yeah, that's that's rough when you want to just yeah. make. 54 eternal yeah (laughs) uh yeah and then and then 55 like comes around anyway yeah um so remind me again like because obviously i listened to your to your voice message but uh just so i'm like fully with it remind me again how you want to uh progress through Okay. I'm going to explain some of this like on the episode proper too. So I just want to say like we're doing it slightly different, but yeah, yeah, the, the idea is open. I have this overall synopsis that I, I wrote because I think just in talking this in retrospect, it's easier to be like, Hey, here's the like very big overall arc of this. Like, let's have a part where we just explained here's how like the duels go and things mm-hmm. like that. Right. So that's what a lot of the overall was, was like, this stuff is going to get repeated. So we can kind of just quickly gesture at it. 
then go through the synopsis of all of the episodes. So we just have all of that at the the top. Um, and then we can get into the discussion and we can kind of follow up wherever we, we want to go. But um, I, I mostly just want to be like, let's focus first and foremost on overall themes that we're interested in and try and talk about those. Um, and we'll bring in like, stuff that happens to different characters as we're talking about something. Um, and then once we kind of get to the, the end of that, we might go, is there something that we want to talk about with like a specific character that we feel like we didn't cover when we were talking about the themes? And then we yeah. can kind of talk about their episodes. Um, like, I kind of feel like we will get to the end of talking about a lot of the themes and then we'll be like, okay, let's just talk a little bit about the crow high episode. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. I don't, yeah, yeah. that might come up a little bit, but also to just like at the end there be like, yeah, literally the steak stuff and everything. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Um, um, okay. And so, that's also yeah, probably I, a good time for a certain amount of like, and there's stuff that's like, there's stuff that feels explained at the beginning of the Black Rose arc that then becomes confused again with like, uh-huh. oh, Mamiya is like not the Utena's prince um yeah. is Anthe's Utena's prince or is this just like a weird thing throwing us off again like who knows so um but yeah, yeah. okay I, I like this um because it's also like if someone is already if if we like someone's listening to the podcast and they already know Utena they can just be like okay this is a synopsis section and then we'll just like mm-hmm. they can just skip that easily, um, but yeah, it, it also like allows us to condense the like the synopsis and uh, just give like the broad strokes. I feel like yeah. Um, okay. And I was planning uh, to write shorter synopses, and then they ended up being about the length of what I normally write. Um, some of them ended up being slightly longer than what I normally write. Um, it's that's okay. okay. Though. Yeah. My main goal is to just, like, not have us go five hours if we can help it. <laughs> Four hours, you said? Uh, five hours, but... Oh, five um, hours. All right, we can, uh, we can pull that off. Yeah. Um, I feel like four hours we might hit. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, I think we can... I think we can keep it at our standard mark. Um, yeah. But, you know, we'll see. Um, also, before we get into episode proper uh drink check so i made i made a black rose cocktail um so is that like a is that a standard cocktail like a one that's like out in the world or did you i don't know (laughs) it's (laughs) it's so it is one that i found online um i don't know if it's like a standard one or if it's just this recipe called the black rose but Mm. um it's Two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of grenadine, so it's like a little bit sweet and like cherry flavor there, um, and then you uh, do a flamed lemon peel and put it in it. So part of why I did it is I just was like, let me see if there are any recipes. I might just make one up. Um, and this one felt like it's kind of a dark red color, but then especially with the uh, flaming uh, uh, lemon peel, that just felt thematic enough to the, the arc. That I was mm-hmm. like, yeah. Um, and then after that, I'm going to crack open a beer, which nice. is the Wolf Imperial Stout aged in bourbon barrels. Um, 
And so this, I feel like, is thematic for a number of reasons. One, Imperial start Stout, so it's going to be, like, a very dark, you know, black beer. Um, the Wolf, which is, like, kind of this fabulistic um, representation of, like, you know, danger, which which I think we're, like, getting mm-hmm. even more into here um, as the story progresses. And then um, Aged, so, you know, it spent some time, which I, I think is tying <laughs> into some of the themes here. Um, yeah. And then the bourbon barrels kind of like ties it to the the cocktail I'm having as well. So, um, nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, and it's from that's Three great. Sheeps Brewing. So, like having uh the wolf from Three Sheeps. Um, yeah, it's like the the you know wolf in sheep's clothing or something. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought right. it was very so, thematic. As per usual, you've you've thoroughly outdone me. Um, but. <laughs> Um, I have a, uh, Kolsch, um, from a company called Sonder Brewing, which is like Cincinnati, um, north of Cincinnati. Um, that's all I know about them, by the way. So, um, please don't ask me any questions. Um, I just got this at the store, but I know it's from Cincinnati. Um, so yeah, it's a Kolsch. So, um, it is sufficiently like light, uh, and, you know, flavorless for me to enjoy. Um, and the can, uh, the can tells me that it's crisp, refreshing German style beer. Um, it's, it's called the, the Voss Kolsch. If I didn't mention that already. Um, it's, it's pretty good. Nice. Yeah. One of these days I have like two Michelob ultras in my fridge that have been in there for, Um, probably about over six months at this point, um, because my mom came to visit and she like drank Michelob Ultras here and then left too, which was extremely rude, honestly. Um, and so they're just sitting in my fridge, like every time I open my fridge to get something and I see them in there, my mood just drops a little bit. Um, but if I just like pour them out, then they I feel like they've won. So I I don't I don't have a heart to do that. So we have to drink them at some point. But I'm just like putting it way off. I also yeah. know they're gonna just get like make ultra is pretty. It, I mean it's pretty bad from like to begin with. But the longer they wait, like the worse they get. So I don't want to yeah. drink them, but I know the longer I wait, they're just going to get worse and worse. So it's kind of a conundrum here. Is that is that one where they have like a clear or green colored bottle? No, it's it's a dark bottle. Okay, because I found that like beers that are in like a clear or a green color bottle get skunky really really quickly. Um, because I think like. It's just not protecting against the, yeah, the light as well. Um, No sunlight in my fridge, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like they're going to be bad no matter what. So I'm just going to have to, I don't know what, uh, what's, what episode I'm going to do that for. Um, but yeah, yeah, one, one of these days though. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my drink check. 
Yeah. Do we want to get into the podcast now? Um, yeah, I, I think that would be wise. Uh, okay. Given the amount of material we have. Yeah.